and we're live. I'm joined today by Kevin Riley. Kevin is a boy racer. Is that about right, Kev? No, that's not about right. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's quite an insult, actually. <laughs> I prefer the term car enthusiast. Car enthusiast. <laughs> okay, so you're one of these boys, basically, who go whoop, 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 around the fucking country, wrecking everyone's heads, basically. Again, more insults. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you're a car enthusiast, okay? So... The whole concept behind the podcast is that I get people from different loops, basically. Like the last lad was uh, an extreme downhill mountain bike racer. I've had a a director on, a movie director, a musician, you know, different people that are in different loops to give normal people, say, a window into a a different world. Yeah, well, you've probably found talking to those guys that when you get into somebody who's very passionate about the topic that it's such a complex thing. Like, being a car enthusiast can mean so many things. I mean, you just said there at the start, I know you said it jokingly, but like, tearing around the country, whoop, whoop, all this kind of madness. Like, that actually, not to sound bad, but that kind of thing turns my stomach a little bit. And it's in the same context as, say, you might listen to a certain type of music. Say both of us like rock music. And say, I don't know, I like Blink-182, but you might think that's absolute trash. And to the outsider, it's all the one thing. That's all rock and roll, but to somebody who's passionate about the subject you're kind of going no it's it's worlds apart like it's worlds apart like it, i don't know it gets to a point with me where if somebody say a member of my family or something knows somebody else and they go oh kevin likes cars too my safe option is to go no no i don't actually like cars because that can mean so many things it can lead you into a conversation that you just don't want to be in like i suppose it comes down to a thing of cars is something that everybody likes whether you're a normal person say you you like your Audi outside I do I consider myself into my cars yeah everybody likes a nice car it's a thing that you do it's a thing that you show off your money with it's a thing that's nice to have it's nice to go on a drive in a nice car people spend money on cars yeah big money because and it's not that they need it it's because they like having a nice car so it's kind of a universal thing it's something that everybody knows about but it's quite a complex thing when you break it down to an actual car enthusiast. Like there's so it's such there's such a variety of people who will call themselves car enthusiasts. Okay, so for the the only the uninitiated, myself included, can you get, can you break down car enthusiast into X amount of categories and then yeah, your I think you place could. There? Yeah, I think you could. I mean, you, you've got to name a few that come off the top top of my head. Like you've got the people who are into racing. Now, people who are into racing mightn't actually be full-on car enthusiasts, nine times out of ten they are, but somebody who could be into racing mightn't care what car they're in. Now, again, and I, I, I have a feeling I'm going to do this a lot, so, so bear with me. When you say into racing, like what, what do you so even So people mean? that actually go down to a motor racing circuit and race, they could be racing a go-kart, they could be racing a, a car, an Audi like yours outside, they could be racing anything. And sorry, again... That could be just about the adrenaline rush that they're concerned about. Yeah, and again, when you say circuit, you mean track, like a race track. A race track. Mondello. Mondello, which is pretty much the only international racing circuit we have here okay. in Ireland. But then you've got the car enthusiast like that brings his classic car over to a show over the road. I would see him as a car enthusiast. You've got myself, and I kind of fall into the category of kind of the hybrid of the car enthusiast who likes looking after his car but also races it and we'll get to that later on where that kind of thing came out of it's something that will come up where the where the ownership and racing aspect of it came together 
Then you get the people that just want to drive their cars around the town, show them off. There's 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 endless. There's people who rally, which would be Ireland's. Ireland is actually a very top tier country when it comes to amateur rallying. It's kind of our main thing. We had the World Rally Championship in Ireland not so many years ago, did we? Yeah, we had. I think it was. Uh, if my memory serves me right, it's 2012, I think, the WRC was here, and I think which is World Rally Championship, and I think it was here either the year before that or the year after that. It was here two years in a row. That was a big thing. I mean, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, you would have had a lot of World Rally stars that came to compete in the circuit of Ireland, which was a big, big thing back in the day. I mean, if I was to ask you now, could you name a single Irish rally driver? I don't think you could. No, God, no, not at all. And I, to be honest with you, I probably couldn't either. I could, I've, there could be names that would be familiar to me but there's no standout names but I bet you you've heard of Bertie Fisher no no doesn't well, the, even ring a bell right, well the majority of people say my age or your age definitely older Bertie Fisher would have been a household name and because the circuit of Ireland was so big back then because the circuit of Ireland was televised it was on the news every evening what was going on the update of the rally nowadays it's non-existent now the circuit of Ireland the actual name the circuit of Ireland doesn't there is a small rally based on it, but it's nowhere near the event it used to be. So for a long time, now my dates could be very wrong on this, but I'm going to say from early 80s until to that 2012 when the WRC came here, Ireland kind of fell off the map on the world scale as far as it's concerned in rallying. And what, what happened there, do you think? I don't know. I think it was lack of interest from the powers that be. I mean, it used to be, it used to be a thing that, um, how would you say... Most most people would have heard of whether they wanted to or not because it was just in the public eye, and I don't know why it fell out of that. Whether it was costs, whether it was interest of the ordinary people, but it just doesn't seem to be as common anymore. Now, but in saying that, at this moment in time, I don't think there's any other country that can touch Irish rallying for for its homegrown rallying for the likes of me or you that just gets a few bob together and wants to go out and go rallying. The quality is second to none. And when you say quality, is that like the, the quality of places that you can go or the, the quality of the drivers? Or both. Boat both. Or? Like the drivers are quite good drivers. Obviously, they're not a professional level because to be at a professional level driver, to be very, very good at driver requires an awful lot of seat time. It needs to be your job, basically. Okay. You need to be doing it all day, every day. Seat time, and no matter what form or discipline of motorsport or driving, seat time is key. It's not how much money you can spend in your car. It's not this, not that. Seat time. How I've, good you are. I've heard. I've heard similar things said about uh, snooker players. Like they they train, you know, eighty odd hours a week. Is there an equivalent? Like let's say if the average working man's week is forty hours, what's the equivalent for a professional race driver? Would, would you say? I I would say he'd want to be driving at least two to three hours a day. Now okay. that might be two to three hours of solid driving, but that's driving for 15 minutes, taking a break, driving for half an hour, taking a break, but just being in the car. And even when you break that down to my amateur level, say, I think it was, now I haven't been out as often as I would have liked to have been, but say in 2015, I'd done maybe six or seven events in 2015 in my car. Now they're amateur events. It's just driving to a track. There's no competition. It's just having fun. Mm. But in that year, I would have progressed as a driver more than I've ever done before that or after that. Right. Just from being in the car. Now, that's not improving the car. That's not me, you know, putting better tyres or putting better engine or anything in the car. That's just sitting in the car and driving. It becomes like anything else. The more time you spend in it, the more it becomes an extension of your body, etc., etc. Now, that sounds 
exaggerated, but no, that's no, what no. I mean. Like, you know, no, 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 no. It's 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 it boils down to muscle memory. I think. Yeah, it, it, muscle it, memory is massive part of it. Like, yeah, because if you're thinking too much, you you done the mixed martial arts. I before, did. Okay. When you're, I'm sure when you were standing in front of your component your opponent, you're not thinking, oh, I wonder if I leave the immersion on at home. Like, <laughs> you know, you're in the moment. You're not thinking about anything else, only that. And driving is kind of the same because it's your muscle memory that does the majority of the work. And if that's not doing the majority of the work, then you're not going to be very good. You're going to overthink it. More than likely do something wrong or have a crap. And this has happened. I'm speaking from experience. Like, if yeah. my head's not in it, if there's something not right with the car and that's affecting me as a driver, or there's something that's annoying me as a driver and the car could be perfect, if the two don't gel together, you're not going to have a good day. You're not going to enjoy it because you need to be just, when you're driving the car, you need to be just lost in it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so, that's the feeling you chase. That's when you come home. That's the thing you think about. That's what consumes you for the next <laughs> couple of months. Like, it's just like, how do I get back to that point? And unfortunately, with motor racing, no matter what form it is, it is, and it, oh, it's just such an expensive hobby. It's a disgustingly expensive hobby, no matter what level you're doing it. At. And p- why is that? Is it because you're going through tires or fuel or well, like, things I've got break quite a cheap or... car. Like my car is is a, is a cheap car to run on the grand scheme of things. I'm sorry, even run. Like, what does that mean on fuel? Just, just or... on fuel, on tires, on maintenance, on and we do the majority of our maintenance ourselves. And by ourselves, I mean me and a close group of friends. Do the majority of the work on the car myself. Like, I do not like giving my car anybody to do work on. Yes. Because nine times out of ten, you won't come back the way you want it. So unless it's something that you absolutely cannot do yourself within your circle of friends, it's the that's the only time it will go elsewhere. But, like, that keeps the cost down. That makes sure it's done the way you want it. And if you're familiar with the car, and let's face it, you're putting... I'm not a professional mechanic. You're putting the car together yourself. You're going down to a, 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 a track to race it round you're putting your life in the hands of what you've done it's nice to know in your own head that i was there last night i put that axle back into that car i tightened it up yeah you're not worrying was the mechanic hung over when he fucking did it exactly yeah and then there's the other aspect of if the rattle does come into the back of it you go oh i was rooting with that axle last night what did i not do (laughs) (laughs) you know so it works both ways but it that to me is part of it too and i know i'm straying away from whatever point we've done but that that to me is a big aspect of it and like even growing up it's a funny thing cars for me it's come back to the the topic of the disciplines somebody could grow up and say their father put them in a go-kart at the age of four and they to me that person gets consumed by racing it's the adrenaline it's like going on a roller coaster they're not concerned whether it's a go-kart formula one car whatever it is if they're wheel to wheel racing they don't care what it is that's that's the thrill they're looking for yeah for me the car is 50% of it. The actual car that you're driving, the car, the make, the model, the type of car, front-wheel drive, the rear-wheel drive, what, engine, etc., etc., is 50% of the buzz. I have no interest. And it's not that I have no interest. Everybody has... Every, racing is great. It doesn't matter what you're racing in. But to me, it's 50% about what the car is, 50% about what you do with it. And that, to me, is, is where I come from as far as a car enthusiast goes. Like, when I grew up, like, to give you the level of, I suppose, where that stemmed from, I suppose, when I grew up, I don't know why or when I started liking cars, I just did. I can't, I couldn't tell you what moment, like, some people would tell you, oh, I seen such and such happen, and it was at that moment, I Yeah, realized. your dad brought you to Mondello or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, look, when I grew up, my uncle, my uncle Thomas, oh my God, also my godfather, would have had an interest in cars, in everything, and oh, I couldn't have asked for better person to be a godfather because he brought me to so many rallies at a time where i was just clueless it was just 
magic to me. And, and what, what it was. What age were you, just to give people an idea? Oh, I could have been five the first time I was brought to a rally. Okay. You know, I'm not saying I was brought every two or three months. It might have been once a year. This is my memory feeding me back. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, it might have been, I might have been brought when I was five and I might not have went to another one until I was seven. Yeah. And I know when I was fairly young, one actually went by my house, which was like the best thing ever. Oh my God, the rallying is coming to me. Like, And then I grew up, you grow up from that and you moved on from the rally and then he was bringing me to things like that. And it's like, where do you get your fix of cars from? Even from that early age, it was like, I used to draw cars. I'd actually be quite good at drawing. I used to draw cars. And the reason I used to draw cars is because it got me closer to cars. I was obviously too young to drive. Of course, I yeah. used to cycle bicycles all the time because I love riding bikes as well. But like I used to draw cars because that made me feel a little closer. I could draw it and I could put the wheel I wanted to put on and I could do this. And that, obviously, as I grew older, I got a lot better at doing that. And then I was also part of the PlayStation generation. And this is one of probably, as far as my life is concerned, the biggest influence on my life was a game called Gran Turismo that came out on the PlayStation. That just transformed everything. Now, I'm going to have to get you to explain that because I know there's people listening here who've just heard you say the biggest, whatever it was, the biggest transformative moment of your life was a computer game and they're just kind of shaking what? their head. That is depressing. Like. Yeah, yeah, that's the saddest thing I've ever yeah, heard. Yeah, like it sounds really bad. Now, I'm not saying that my life got consumed by that. Yeah. I'm just saying that as a young kid who loved cars, who's too young to drive cars, I didn't have fields that I could drive them in. Like, say, some... No, I'm going to say, not going to say friends. Some people that I would have been aware of from a very young age, they were out rallying cars around the field. That, to me, at the time, was dream stuff. Like, Yeah. But here was this... Like, the plate that... I think we had the Mega Drive first, which was a console in the early 90s. Then, I think, the PlayStation came in in 95. And a few years down the line, then this game called Gran Turismo was released on the PlayStation. It was a Japanese-made game which only had Japanese car manufacturers in it. Now, and I'm not just talking this happened in Ireland. This happened the world over. This game has had an influence the world over that has created this culture that has just thrived from the early 2000s until now. It's kind of dying out a little bit now, but it was my era. This game created and I don't care what anybody says, that game affected so many people of my age. And that's what started it off. And it only had the six Japanese manufacturers, whatever they were. And I'm sorry, what age are you? I'm, I am, oh, what age am I? I'm 27. 27. No, just when you said people of your age and the people listening yeah. don't know what age are. So, like, so you know. I would have been born in 1990. Okay. Right. So I suppose that Gran Turismo game, that came in through primary school for me. I had a friend in primary school who also played that game, who also liked the same type of cars. And from an early age, I because of rallying, I'm getting into another topic now, but I'll be brief with it. I no, come back go to for it. it, go for it. Because of rallying, we were associated with these cars called twin cams, which are Toyota Corollas. Rear wheel drive Toyota Corollas, and they have a cult following in Ireland. Now, I'll come back to that later. But as far as the game Gran Turismo was concerned, it was like, oh my God, you can get a twin cam in Gran Turismo. And it was like, instead of having to draw the picture of the car, I was able to drive it on my own little, in little screen, as pathetic as it might sound. For me that was the closest I could get to that dream car. Now, you might say, what a small dream, like a fucking Toyota <laughs> Corolla, like what the hell is wrong with this fella? But it was like, I've always been a realist that kind of way. I, I love Ferraris, I love all that exotic stuff, but I don't dream about it because it's not a reality for me. Yeah, you're never going to get the 150 yeah, grand. I am not the type of driven business person who is going to get to that point because I spend too much of my time thinking about cars. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So... I suppose at that point, that, that's kind of what brought me up to the primary school time. Then I started in secondary school, still loved cars. 
for say the first year or two of secondary school I didn't really there was nobody for me to bounce that off I had all this energy thinking about cars and there was nobody that kind of give me that back I don't know how that sounds but that's cars are something that you need to share with people and I didn't really have anybody that taught the same way as me about it. yeah it isolated you it isolated me slightly to the point where it was just again people are going to say it's sad it was just coming home on my playstation and my Gran Turismo I think it was on Gran Turismo 2 at that stage it was great um, I think it was in third year in school I met this guy called Killian O'Brien you know Killian from playing cards yes um, I don't know how I got talking to him but I just got talking to him one day about the subject of twin cams and how much he liked them and how much I liked them and I was like oh this is weird this is that somebody that I've went to school with for the last three years and I've never had this conversation with them before and used to get to the stage where you, I think it was tech graphics at 10 o'clock give me that 10 minute break up and you'd talk shit about cars for 15 minutes like and then we ended up being in our class and that went on. And it was like, oh, you play Gran Turismo. Then we used to go home for lunch to race on Gran Turismo. And that was in secondary school. While all this was happening for my generation, go back maybe 10 years before me in Japan. This is, this is going to come together eventually. No, go for it, man. So the go Gran Turismo thing came from Japan. The game came from Japan. And the yeah. whole Gran Turismo game was based on this idea that you could buy a Mitsubishi Evo road car and this is what they used to do in Japan. Buy a Mitsubishi Evo road car. Lightly modify that car. Put better tyres on it. Better brakes and little things. Still use it as a road car. Still use that as your everyday car. But drive it to a circuit. Race it around the circuit for the day. And drive it home. And Gran Turismo sold this idea of this amateur motorsport to the rest of the world. Almost like a family saloon slash race car. Slash race car, but I mean, it didn't have to be a family saloon. Like I'm, sh- like it, it could have been the beauty of Japanese early nineties Japanese car and late nineties Japanese cars that were very affordable and quite fast and reliable and reliable the and the, the modifications were so readily available for them that you could make them go very fast for very little money. I mean, if you compared the price of what it would take to get, I don't know, an Evo that to go as fast as a Lamborghini at the time you'd have a lot of change out of your Evo. Like. Yes. And that sold to people. That was like the people's car, the people's way of beating the, the big money. But this is what this is what the Japanese culture was at the time. So while we were playing this in video games, in Japan, this was happening in reality. Yeah. And this type of driving style was developed in Japan uh, called drifting. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yes. But again, so, for pe- I've heard of it, but for people for who have For people, haven't. basically, it's rather than your conventional racing, your... It's partly for fun. It certainly started out for fun, but you're sliding the car around the corner. Driving it sideways. Driving it sideways, to put it bluntly, yeah. So it started out as an illegal thing in Japan in mountains. Guys driving up mountains in primarily rear-wheel drive cars because it's kind of the basic form you need is a rear-wheel drive car. So the rear wheels are driven, the front wheels steer, whereas majority of modern cars nowadays are front wheels driving, front wheels steering. Okay. Um, so that started out, I'm going to say in the late 80s in Japan, popularized throughout the 90s and towards the end of the 90s and early 2000s exploded in popularity because of a racing driver Kiichi Sushia lent his name to it he kind of he kind of done a lot of drifting as he was racing he was very fast with that driving style and won a lot of races because of that but when he attached his name to this otherwise underground illegal sport and started running proper competitions it exploded now I wouldn't have, this was going on in 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. Realistically, I probably wouldn't have heard of this until 2003. Okay. As a young person playing Grand Theft or whatever, talking with Killian in class, this kind of 
drift and thing came out in magazines and you're going, oh my God. The first thing that kind of caught your attention was the style of the cars was so inviting. It was so cool the way the cars were styled. It was like this mix of, like racing cars are generally all about function. Always all about function. And to, to Aerodynamics over aerodynamics style. To a car enthusiast side, that could be quite cool regardless of whether they're trying to make it look cool or not. Yes. But drifting was this kind of free way of thinking of going, no, I'm going to make this car look really, really cool and then I'm going to do this really cool style of driving with it. And it was each driver, like I could probably name all the drivers from that era because I loved it so much, but each driver had his own style or her own style. And you could tell nearly by watching driving who was driving the car. If you couldn't, if you didn't know what car it was, you could tell because drifting was this thing that was judged. All of a sudden, you weren't going against the clock. And what is the judging based on? The judging is based on like a, a judge will lay out uh, on a corner. A judge will lay out what he wants to do. So I want you to clip this part of the track, this part outside part of the track with your back wheel, and then I want you to get your front right wheel in here on the apex, which is the kind of the the, the point that you would clip if you were racing around the corner to take the straightest line through the corner. So they'll set out. When it started out, you always drifted on the racing line, which is what I loved. Now, it's moved on from that, and I'm not as big a fan of it. I'm actually not as big a fan of drifting anymore as it used to be. I don't like what it's become. But back then, it was just this kind of free way of expressing your style with your car. It was it was an amalgamation of exactly what I liked. How the car looked, how the car drove. Slammed into one thing, and this awesome, flamboyant way of driving. Now, a lot of people who are into racing will turn their nose up at it and go, oh, that's, that's that's just, it's judged, it's messing. And you can to a point, you can kind of see where they're coming from, but I keep quite an open mind when it comes to all the different types of driving, rallying, circuit racing, all that type of thing. I keep an open mind to it. So the drifting for me was very refreshing. And like I said a second ago, it was this way of amalgamating my love for the way cars looked versus the way they drived. Yeah, and at the time there was a guy still he still drives a guy called Katsu Hiro Yuyo another Japanese guy and he drifted a twin cam and because they were massive over there twin cams over there are, are AE86 Corollas they call them AE86 is the chassis code so okay. that's what they call them over there they actually call them Hachi Roku which is 86 in Japanese right so if you're over there if I was over there and two Japanese days were having a conversation I heard one of them say Hachi Roku I go Oh, what are they talking about? Yeah. But at the time, uh, YouTube was only coming out as well. So you were getting access. You were looking at it in magazines. And now here was this new medium of access to it that you could actually... Now, you might wait 20 minutes for a two-minute clip. To, to load or But whatever. you yeah, could yeah. see Katsu Hiro Yu, you're driving an A86, and then you're just, you're just mind just got taken over by it. Like, I was just <laughs> like, I remember seeing that and just thinking, this is it. How do I do this? Like, and that sentiment was shared with Killian at the time. And um, that kind of just took over then. Again, we were still too young to A, own a car, or B, drive one somewhere. So I think we were on Grand Theft Four at this stage. <laughs> Uh, so that was that was like we tried so much to emulate that through the video games and he drew cars as well so we'd draw cars I mean I remember summers just calling out to either one another's house and just drawing cars and playing Gran Turismo for the day and just trying to get closer to it through that like so I think that was probably that probably got most of the way through secondary school there I'm going to say so he actually Killian actually left school in fifth year started working on a quarry and about six or eight months later bought a car through his cousin in Japan, bought a twin cam from Japan at 16 years of age, possibly 15 years of age. Fuck. Yeah, which was 
yeah, that was so big. It was like, holy moly, you've actually got one. This is in all these years we're looking and dreaming about them. You're actually after going and getting one. So that was kind of the beginning of actually working on the real thing. We were so innocent at the time. Like it was, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. And I don't think, and he rooted with that a lot and kind of drove it on the road and drove it off, but never, never got into it as much as we ended up doing in, in a few years down the line. But to stick with my end of things, I think I was 17, 16 or 17, and uh, myself and Killian decided that we wanted to get, we wanted to get doing this drifting crack. And we kind of talked to each other into it. I, t- I honestly think if he wasn't there with me, if the two of us didn't edge each other on, neither of us mightn't have ever done it. Like, you might have went, oh, that's too expensive. Maybe you would, I don't know. But it definitely was a big help at such a young age to go, let's just do it. Like, we had no money. And we went over, over to England, bought a twin cam off the, this guy over who, in England, called Phil Morrison, who owns a company called Driftworks. He just happened to have one for sale at the time for quite cheap money. And how did you even know this guy existed? Or? Through the internet. So, so the internet was kind of mainstream at this stage okay, I'm talking perfect. about now. So forums were a big thing, or forums, however you say it. They were a big thing at the time, and Driftworks was probably the biggest one. So the guys that ran Driftworks, while we were playing video games, they were starting it over in England. They were out driving. And I'm actually quite good friends with one of them now who started it over there. Now, it has to be said as well that from, I'd say, about 2001, 2002 onward, Ireland had started and it's, it doing it itself. Because whether you realise it or not, Ireland has quite a close affiliation with, because of rallying with the rear-wheel drive car and the Corollas and the Mark II Escorts and all this, it's quite closely related to them. So drifting fits Ireland quite well. It fitted into Ireland quite well. Because rallying is crazy expensive. Yet here was this motorsport that was so cheap that a rear-wheel drive car was the ideal thing for it. And it was just, it just suited this country so well. And we're really good at it. Really good at it. To the point where James Dean, a guy from Cork, has won the Formula Drift Championship in America, which is as close to the World Championship as you'll get. A guy from Cork. He's 25, I think. Just some lad. He is what you might as well consider the World Champion. And he's Irish. And I've I think he was actually on TV3 the other day. Hilarious. Yeah. But uh, where was he? Yeah, we bought that car off that guy Phil Morrison in England, who would have been a big name in drifting at the time, and we figured, ah, oh, he's hardly going to put his name on the line. But I mean, it's a Corolla. How bad could it be? So it was kind of hilarious. We went over to England, got a plane to England, a 16-year-old and a 17-year-old. Killian had the number plates off his Corolla in his backpack. We went over looked at the car, Phil picked us up from the airport, looked at the car, I say he was thinking, what the fuck is going on here? Like, We handed him the money, got into the car, I think Killian had a driver's license, I'm not sure. <laughs> screwed, it turned out he only brought one number plate with him, so we screwed the number plate onto the back of the car, loaded the thing up, and two, If you, I look him back, like when you see any pictures of it at that age, and you're just going, how did we not get arrested? We got into the car and drove the car from, well Killian drove it, from Birmingham to the ferry. Nothing in the window. So we got to the we got to the ferry and like I remember at the time there was a I'm sorry you when you say nothing in the window no tax insurance no, no, tax, just no nothing, insurance just yeah, absolutely yeah. nothing a scrapyard car practically. couldn't have been any more illegal but we were so innocent I had no way would I do it now I'd shit myself if I went to do it now <laughs> we're just so innocent and just excited about it we just got it done like and I remember pulling up onto the ferry and this uh, do you know kind of when you're coming onto the ferry sometimes they do spot checks. Yeah. So this guy obviously seen these two young heads coming in the car and going, what's going on here? Like, I waved us over to the site and the car was full of junk. So I think we spun him a story that we brought the car over to England, 
to get work done on it by Phil Morrison and Driftworks and that we were bringing it back and that's why there was a road cage in it and that's why there was so many spare parts in the back of it. Now, to this day, I'm pretty convinced the guy just felt sorry for us and he didn't get that we were so young and he was just going, just get home. Because I'd say if it was my age now, he'd have arrested me. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's where it all started. And I mean, what was worse at the time was we got off the ferry in Dublin and then rather than going straight home and getting the tar t- tucked away, we went down to our friends in Wicklow to show them the car. Like, of course. So it, was, like, it was just stupid, like so stupid. I think that car sat at my house for probably six or seven months after that to try and recuperate the money that we had got together to buy the thing in the first place and then i'm gonna say 2007 we did our first drift day which is a track day but you're drifting right in the track okay and so it, sorry what i'm lost in the years again how long was that after you went over and got it uh i'd say about eight or nine months okay we don't didn't really do anything to the car your basic maintenance changed oil and bits and bobs again we were young we didn't have a clue uh we went to a place called nuts corner our friends in Wicklow told us about this place in Nuts Corner. They're going, there's nobody at it. It's a grand place to try it out for your first time. There's nobody there. It's a really quiet day out, you know. So we got the car loaded up and struck up from Nuts Corner. It's, it's up the north somewhere. I think it's about two and a half, three hours away up the north. Um, I remember, I'll never forget rolling up the road, sitting in the van beside my cousin. And I, we came towards the track and I could just see all the people that were there. And I just felt like getting sick out the window. I was just like, oh my God. I hadn't driven a car on the road. I could, I'd driven a car around the field at this stage. I mean, I was nervous about would I be able to take off without letting the car cut out with the clutch. <laughs> and here I was about to start trying drifting around the track. like In front know, of a crowd. In front of a crowd. So I was just so nervous. But we went out that first day and yeah, I was absolutely terrible at it. Because it's such... The thing about drifting is if you, if you go uh, racing around the track, you can be really, really bad at it but not really take much risk because you're going so slow. The thing about drifting is it's... Uh, you can't do it slowly. You can't do it. You can't, yeah, you can do it slowly, but you need to break over this kind of barrier to get the car sideways. And to do that needs a fair bit of aggression. And that's scary when you haven't done it before. You don't know what's going to happen. So the first time I was doing it, it was like, oh, this is a ball of shit car. It's really cheap. In the in the reality, it was very cheap car at the time. If it was nowadays, you could afford to buy two or three of them and go, ah, oh, yeah, we'll wreck this one. Yeah. But... Back then, we just didn't have the money. But I remember going out on it, and like I was terrible. I was spinning the car out, so I was losing control of the car left, right, and centre. But at the end of the day, I think I maybe drifted, half drifted one corner once, and that was enough that I was coming home going, yeah, yeah, I need more, I need more, I need more. So I think at that time, it was quite cheap to go up there. I think we might have done five or six days that year, and the progression every time you were getting better and better and better and faster, and it the better you got the more addictive it was and then I suppose the aspect of improving the car started to come in then I mean there was no need to improve the car we weren't at the level required to improve the car but because we liked playing around with cars and working on cars coming back to the draw and thing just fiddling with cars filling your time with cars I mean racing is expensive so in the evenings it's nice to go out and work on the car because you still feel like you're doing something yeah you're you're not necessarily into driving as much as you are into cars and driving is obviously a massive part of that, but it's not... Exactly, it's that's not what I was saying earlier on about the 50% driving, 50% about the car. Mm. I mean, if I was just into driving, I'd have gone insane at this stage because I don't do enough of it because it's expensive to do. But playing with the car fills in that gap. And it's kind of like a thing where you might put in three months work into the car and then you get that release at the end of it all when you go and drive it and you think to yourself, oh, that was so worth it. I'm so happy i done that to the car. I'm so happy i done this to the car because I'm at a level now where I can see those differences. 
Whereas back then it was just doing it for the sake of doing it because it was something fun to do. Um, like that was, I don't know, how long ago was that? What did they say, 2007? Yeah. 10 years ago. Like I've done a lot of driving. Still have that car that we bought at the start. It's sitting out in the shed at the minute. I ended up buying my own one. Killian had his own one that he was bought when he was 15. And that car that we shared, so we both own that car. That's kind of sitting there now for, I don't know what we might end up doing. But we both have our own individual cars. And we have driven those together now for the best part of eight or ten years. And the friends that that has brought into our lives from all over the world is incredible. Like I've had people come over from, or we've had people come over from the UK, from a guy come over from New Zealand, guys over from America, just to see us, to see the cars. Because they loved our style and our type of driving so much. They've seen it on the internet. That's the thing about the internet, like nobody's and you could say you could say our names to somebody in America who's in the drifting scene and go oh yeah those guys those guys drive those Corollas don't they and they go oh yeah 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 so it, the drifting is like this nice little community around the world and because of Instagram and because of Facebook and all these things it can survive as that little community around the world so like if you go back to what I was saying earlier when I started secondary school where you're like you've got nobody to bounce this off all of a sudden you've got this inspiration coming from everywhere. Oh, look at what that guy Yeah, in, in school, you had a pool of the 30 lads in your class and the whatever amount of lads in your year, but now it's practically the entire world. Practically the entire world. And you don't have to waste your time with people who kind of like cars, but they're not into the same thing as you. Yes. Because cars is such a broad topic. Like, I could totally disagree with somebody about something and I'd be like, that's ridiculous. What are you doing that for? And they'll just believe in it fully. And I'd be like, no, that's stupid. So you don't even have to waste your time with that anymore. You can just deal with people who are like-minded like you now. That's the beauty of it. Now, you need to you need to have physical interactions with those people. You need to go and drive with them, which doesn't always happen if they're the far side of the world. But, I mean, I've driven with, uh, back to that Driftworks company that we bought the car off originally. Yeah, in Birmingham. In Birmingham. Uh, a guy called Chris Parry, who, again, while we were still playing video games, he was drifting a Corolla. So he was like a a local hero to us. He was the closest thing we had to what was going on in Japan. And um, about about four years ago now, uh, Chris had sold his car. He crashed it really bad, got really bummed out about it and moved away from the Corollas and experimented with other stuff. But having seen us doing so much driving with them, he kind of went, I want to get back into this. So about four years ago, he bought himself a Corolla again. We were talking to him on this online chat or whatever we had a little group chat or whatever like that and it was kind of again you're inspiring people you're going oh Paz is back in the game I want to go and do this and I want to get ready and we're going to go drive together so he invited us over to this thing called Drift Matsurai now don't ask me what Matsurai means I think I think it means like drift for hours I don't know Japanese it's just, word it's, it's, this Japanese word is probably thrown around a little bit too much and the real meaning of it is probably long lost but it was basically this two day weekend of drifting on Anglesey Circuit in Wales now, I don't know if you've ever seen Anglesey Circuit, but it is, um, it's it's on a peninsula surrounded by the sea and it is the most fantastic circuit you can imagine. Like, Is it Connemara-esque? Yeah, you're on the right lines. Okay. It's this circuit carved into the side of the cliffs. Like, it's just amazing. And um, he invited us over to this. He was like, the guy that runs it, it's kind of the, the, the event we were going to, it's kind of an end of the year kind of blowout for all the people who do professional drifting. They just right. get to go and have fun and not be serious about it. Okay. But the guy that ran the British Drift Championship at the time loves Corollas. He said, he said the pads, get the guys over from Ireland. They can they can come and join us. They don't have to pay entry or whatever like that. Just, they're going to have to pay the ferry. So I'll give them free entry if they come over. 
because it'll make my event look good to have those. Like, nobody drifts Corollas anymore. It's a thing of the past for people who are into modern drifting. So when people see, people love them. They love to see them. They make this great noise. You know the guy that's driving it is always has to be really aggressive because they've got such little power. They're really exciting to watch. So for his event, it was probably great for him to have these three or four Corollas coming over from Ireland and having, like, they sound like a bunch of bees driving around the track. You can hear them from the far side of the track. They're just, they're fun to watch. Even to somebody, I'd say, I'd like to think that even to somebody who's never seen it before, we'll be looking at them going, they look like a blast. Those guys are sweating in those things. But we come over to that event. We were invited to that event. We come over. And then for me, and I, I'm fairly sure for Killian as well, it was a big thing to get to drive with Chris Parry, or Paz, as what we call him. But it sounds like things you practically represented Ireland. No, no, definitely not. No, I wouldn't say that. Like Everything I'm saying to you now is on a very, very amateur level. And anybody that would know our names outside of Ireland would be in that close-knit drifting community that likes that early Japan style of drifting. Now, I know I probably haven't explained that enough, but like the, the, way, the way drifting started out in Japan is what we like. We'll put it this way. In, in, that world, in the world of uh, Japan-style twin-cam drifting, like who in Ireland is, is kind of far more recognised than you say and Killian like even the pause there yeah but I don't says a lot I don't mean there is a couple of guys there is a good few guys that are into into it properly and it's like there's guys out there that aren't maybe as well known as us that are a lot more active than we are and deserve to be as well known as us but I think and a lot of it is down to Killian because Killian communicates a lot on social media I don't do that so much so I have to admit that the majority of people I would have met because of it is probably through Killian talking to them online. I just don't have the interest or I do have the time, but I just I can't get on with messaging somebody all day long. It drives me mental. Yeah, it's I'd not your thing. Just, it's not my thing. I'd rather just talk to somebody face to face. But he's quite good at it. And, you know, you get talking to Japanese people that way even. like. But there is a lot of guys in Ireland and, and, and certainly... That way, with that dedication, there is a couple of guys with the same love for that as we do and probably are as well known. Some and of them drive Corolla, some of them drive other cars. Is there kind of bitchiness between you and them? or is No, it absolutely not. No, no. There's none of that nonsense whatsoever. Absolutely none of that nonsense. I would have no time for that. And if there was, I'd have absolutely no time for it. Now, I'm sure there might be something behind closed doors or something like that, but you don't get that. Because you can't afford to have that. Because there's so few people left who like that that early Japan thing. Yeah, yeah. There's so few people left that you you couldn't afford to be bitchy about it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like you, at the end of the day, there isn't these events where it's just all these people who like that early, there isn't America at the minute. They've got a great community over there. But as far as Ireland and as the UK goes, what you're doing is you're, you've got maybe your four or five friends who are into the same thing as you. You might meet three or four of them over there in the UK who are into the same thing. And then you're thrown into this fucking cesspit of what drifting <laughs> has become. Yeah, like I like the the top level of professional drifting because if you watch it, it is absolutely incredible driving and the machines are unbelievable. They're not. I don't have the love for the machines, but you can't deny how impressive they are. Like like your Audi outside probably has 140, 50 horsepower. When you get into it and drive it for the first time, you're going, oh, this car is pretty fast. Like the drift cars in the UK, around the world, in Ireland as well, like maybe run eight, 900 horsepower. Right. Like it doesn't matter what that's in, that's going to be impressive. You mightn't have a love for it, but it, you'd still go, wow. I just don't have any interest in that anymore. 
I don't like what it's become. It's become just as much money as you can throw at it. And then on the opposite end of the scale, let's say that, ang- well, to, to kind of eliminate it from that Anglesey event, but let's just say a random day that you go down to Mandela for me to drive around. I would bring my car down and drive around. I'll have both ends of the scale. I'll have those mega professional built cars and then I'll have some guy that went out and paid €250 Euro for his BMW. His lights are falling off the front of it. His bumpers are hanging off it. It looks like he's after taking it out at the local scrapyard. And he's driving around. Now that just doesn't do the image of any sport any good. To him, he's having a great time. To me, I'm going, oh, this is really taking away from me day. I just want to see people with the same love for this. It's like anything. If you have a passion for MMA or something, and somebody tries to claim that they're, they're after having a brawl outside Supermax and Nav and... And trying to go, hey, that was so professional, not professional, but that was brilliant and all that. You're kind of going, no, it wasn't. That was a farce. It was farcical. And that's what it's like for me. You sound like you sound like you're looking down your nose at them. But if you're passionate about something, you want to see it done right. You want to see the people who are doing it have a love for it. And for me, no matter what type of motorsport they're in, or if they're into table tennis, if I can see that the person is really, really into it, then I'll have time for them. If they're doing it to show off to somebody else or to just go into the pub that night and go, yeah, I bought the car for 200 quid, drove this shit, and left it below, I didn't care about it, and going, that's not impressive, man, that's just, that's you didn't achieve anything there, like, you know, it's, and that's, unfortunately, when you go to a drift day nowadays, that's what you're met with, so when you're saying, you're, you're is there a big community, is there bitchiness, you literally cannot afford it, because you, when you go to a drifter, there might be five other cars, that you would look at and go, that's a cool car, I must go over and talk to that guy. I've never F- met that five guy. out of how many? Maybe 30 cars at an event. Okay. You obviously like your own car, but there might be five other cars that are built with that idea in mind. Yeah, they take, take it that seriously. There is a, yeah, there is, they take it that seriously or they have that passion for it that they don't want to go out with their car falling asunder because that's not what they that's not what they grew up to love. Like, So, I can, like, I can, I can, as I'm having this conversation, I'm thinking of all the people there is in this country that have nice cars that you get on with so well and it's great that I can think of them but to get everybody together at one time is very difficult yeah because somebody's car has been worked on or somebody hasn't got money it's just not possible and is there a like is there a national you know drift day or like anything there is there's an Irish drift championship right and it's one of the best in the world and it produces the best driver in the best drivers in the world as we've seen with James Dean who went off he, like he's won everything in Europe he's won everything in the UK he's after winning everything in America maybe he'll go to Japan who knows but our standard of drifting here is very high. Like, don't get me wrong, our professional drifting here is, as far as I'm concerned, second to none, really. But you've got that level, which I think you need to have. You need to have the top level, whether I'm into it or not. You definitely need to have that top level of a motorsport to, to promote it, to get money into it, to develop. Like, if you don't have the top level, companies will stop putting money into parts to develop parts. That that technology and them old parts don't trickle into us. Yes, yeah, from the, the top amateur. Down. Yeah, it has to start at the top. So you need to have that top level. But the top level used to be, in the early 2000s, the top level, for me, was so good at the time. It was like, you've often heard people saying, this is the golden era of football, or this is the golden era of whatever, fighting yeah. or whatever it is. Like, the golden era of drifting was 99 till 2005. And the reason it was the golden era is, was, is, sorry, is because at the time, those cars weren't too far removed from road cars. But that's all the people knew about drifting at the time. Before they started going crazy with all the mad horsepower and all the mad parts they were putting onto them. And that was top level at the time. Yet it was so relatable to the car that you were driving down the road. 
it was brilliant and I loved that about it. It was real. Now you're coming back to this thing where you're looking at a car and going, that's a 60 grand car. Like, that's just not achievable. It's it's not relatable to it. Yeah, you can't aspire to it. Back to what we said at the start about the Ferrari. The like. Ferrari, you can't aspire to it. And if it's not relatable to you, I just don't have interest in it. Mm. And, and and that's the way it's gone for me. Now, I'm. it's not just drifting I'm interested in. I'm interested in every form of motorsport, as long as it's done right and it's done with heart. Is drifting the, the top one? How do you mean? In your on your list of uh, interests, uh, well, it would be like moving on a couple of years from the drifting and bits and pieces like that, or or not even moving on of a couple of years. Like in two thousand and fourteen, uh, I went to Japan for the first time. In sorry, twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen, okay. I went to Japan for the first time, which was a pilgrimage I've always wanted to do for obvious <laughs> reasons. <laughs> back to the fucking motherland. And back to the today. motherland to see if it still happen over there now. <laughs> and is it? Even in Japan, the drifting has moved on so much. It get, it's the same thing. There's the small group of guys that are still there. Now, we got actually in contact through through an American guy. We got in contact with a, a guy called uh, Hiroshi Takahashi, or his nickname is Kaicho. And uh, he is like an OG of drifting over there. He was there at the start. He was there before the start. He's just, he's been... The, all the way through and he still drives he never moved on with all the hundreds of thousand euros of the machine he's a purist he's a purist yeah that's the word that is the word that I, I would associate with myself as far as drifting motorsport the type of car anything I'm a purist I like things to be done the way they were done right when they were done the first time and uh, he stayed at it and his car has gotten to the extreme level but yet stayed true to the original formula he actually works for Toyota, this guy. He works for TRD, Toyota Racing Development. He, he, it's dreamy how, how cool this guy is. And, uh, <laughs> like he's got videos of drifting mountains in the 90s and drifting tracks nowadays. So when we went over to 2014, he was over there in 2014. So I'm sorry, just, would you have known he was over there? Yeah, like we were chatting to this guy. He's got good English because of the American airbases. The guy that put us in contact with him lived over there on an American airbase, liked Corollas, met Kaicho taught him English a couple, I, I'm not sure exactly who I think a couple of different America guys who like drifting and Corollas taught quite so English so he's got quite good English like you can have a conversation with him no problem as long as you don't get into slang and everything yeah but uh, super nice guy now I'm not sure whether he's super nice because he's Japanese and he thinks he has to be super nice but to me he seems like a genuinely really nice guy and he's kind of the last last man standing of that era over there which is sad there is a couple of other cars, as I discovered recently, there is a couple of other guys still doing it, or maybe they've resurrected cars and started doing it. It's certainly not what it used to be, but it's great to see it. And what age is this lad if he's like the, oh, he's the last of his kind? He has to okay, be well, something. It's not as if he's on his fucking deathbed, like, do you know what I mean? Oh, You've... no, he's not on his deathbed. I mean, I, he took a few years out of it there recently and um, got back into it. Yeah. Now, I think he was buying a house or something like that, same real-life shit that we all have to deal with. But uh, And so, just, just on that real-life shit, so maybe it was just the way I interpreted what you were saying but I kind of assumed that he was uh, almost like a national figure over there no, and no. you know he's me sponsorship up the ass and but no. not at all okay. he, he's a guy that uh, he did compete at the top level in Japan for a while but as a privateer so he put his own money into it he had some backing from his own company and a couple of other sponsors because at the time in Japan when it started out sponsors were just mad to throw money at I'm assuming because the cars were just littered with sponsors at the time Right. Because there's so Japan's car culture is it's just insane. It's massive. It's bigger than anywhere else as far as I'm concerned. And they're obsessed with the automobile from the ordinary person to the to the likes of me. They're just obsessed with it. 
And uh, he existed as a privateer at the time. And he competed at the top level and done quite well at the top level. But then just kind of, obviously, maybe the money was too much or maybe the sport moved on to where it is now and he just lost interest. And where the, the sport that's moved on, that you know, the, the kind of modern drifting that you're not so much of a fan of, what kind of level is that? Like, are the, are the top racers, you know, multi-millionaires or no, what? Like? No, no, I t- I think... I, ca- I can't answer that question truthfully, but I think a good portion of them are certainly making enough money to make a very good living off it. Right. They're not millionaires. They're not superstars no, or, you know, no. celebrities. It's still or... a very... I would call it a semi-professional motorsport. Okay. Maybe in America they're making good money on it. I'm not sure. But I think a lot of the guys that are making a good money on, them, money on it... Uh, sell themselves quite well and put their name to things and make a living out of it through that. I know what you mean. They're, they might, they're, they're kind of getting paid indirectly. Yeah, like they might put their name to it. They might have a sponsor that's sponsoring them to do like drink Red Bull or something like that. Or yeah. Something like that. But then there's guys that are a bit cleverer that might open their own shops and they're going, oh, well, he's quite successful at drifting. I'll bring my car to that guy. But as far as Kaicho over in Japan was concerned, at this moment in time, he's just an ordinary guy like me or you who works and puts his money into his car. Right. He's just at it so long. He's, he's he's ended up building this car. It's just incredible. And he is currently, as far as I'm concerned, the best Corolla driver who still drives a Corolla ever. And I, what was I, gonna say? I, I can't help but feel that the uh, 2017 Corolla twin cam isn't either a thing or it's not the same as the old one or there is none okay so when did this stop uh, Corolla, making them, like uh, we're being very I suppose I'm very narrow minded but the Corolla applies to me and my interests so I suppose that's why we're concentrating on that but like the twin cam or A86 Corolla or whatever you want to call it was made from 1983 to 1987 oh fuck 83 to 87 that's all now there was an absolutely unbelievable amount of them made they are not while some people will tell you they're a rare car, they're not a rare car. I could say within a within a twenty mile radius of this studio, there is definitely twenty of them. I mean, there's four of them over my shed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? Um, and what's like what differentiates them? I mean, what's the difference between a good one and a bad one? Is it is it how they've been kept or? Oh yeah, well, they're like any you you talk to anybody about early Japanese imports or early Japanese not even imports, just Japanese cars and that that era, they were absolute rust buckets. And when they were made, was it like like now if you go to buy I don't know an A four or a pick a car? There's the the one point six petrol. There's the two liter diesel. There's yeah. the this, the that, the other. Like yeah, well that, at the time like. I know what you're saying. So the the normal version of that car, right, that was kind of a sports special, which you don't get so much anymore because I think the cost of producing cars is just too much. So that that was a car, it was based on an ordinary Toyota Corolla. So so the chassis of the car, where the suspension bolted onto, was like based on a Toyota Corolla four-door that your mother would have drove in 1979 or 1980. A, a production car. A production car. And then Toyota built a sports coupe car on top of that chassis okay so underneath it was still a cheap and cheerful production car yeah, it came off the same they factory line a, at, the, at the time they put a revy fairly powerful little engine into it it was rear wheel drive the car was a big hit because it was such a a natural car to drive at a time when turbocharging and everything was starting to come in and front wheel drive was the new latest thing it was kind of the the last one of the last of the lightweight rear wheel drive what would have been called a driver's car Yes. So a car that bit you when you weren't good enough but taught you a lot. 
And it, it was very popular because of that. And they made loads of them. And like they're still being imported in their, in their droves from Japan into this country today. And you, you kind of flabbergasted. Like, where are they all coming from? Like, and again, from, was made. again, just to, to be clear, from the 84 to 87 period. Yeah, that's they were only manufactured between that period. And the, the car that replaced them was a front wheel drive car. So like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, nearly every car was rear wheel drive. Because yeah, it was the just power it to was, the back yeah, it was an front. easier way to make, and then somebody somewhere along the line came out with the front wheel drive idea with the gear the way they worked the gearbox and all that, and they figured it out. And it was cheaper to produce a front wheel drive car than a rear wheel drive car. Everything was up the front. You didn't have prop shafts and back axles and all this thing. So towards the end of the eighties, I'm going to say, with the exception of BMW and Mercedes, cars started to all go to front wheel drive because it was cheaper to produce them. Which is why that car kind of gained a cult following because it was one of the last. It's like a Mad Max situation. It's the last of the interceptors. It was the last rear wheel drive car, like that was affordable and cheap and that the ordinary person could buy. Yeah, because presumably after that, all not all but most rear wheel drive cars would have been more expensive. Yeah, sports sports cars, cars like yeah. you know, like high end BMWs and everything. The ordinary person couldn't afford them, and I think that's why they gained a cult following here in Ireland as well as as uh, the Mark II Escort. Here and there. Have you ever heard of a Mark II Escort? Yeah. Again, yeah. I would have. I've heard of that. I've heard of like a, an MR2. All these things kind of they resonate with me because I'm, you know, as we said at the start, like I'm into me cars. Mm. I couldn't tell you what an MR2 is. I know it's a Toyota, and I had no one to see. But the, the same with the what did you mention the Escort? Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, I I probably might make out the silhouette of one, but yeah, like, I, I, I've I've exhausted my knowledge on it already. I think I think at this stage, if you're an Irish person who has any interest in cars, like a Mark II Escort is just in your blood. I don't think you have any choice but to love a Mark II <laughs> Escort. Uh, it's a funny one that because I think even though the twin cam was so popular here in, in Ireland and I gained that nickname, nobody else only Irish people call it a twin cam. Like, and what? Where does that even come from? I don't know why because at the time, like the twin cam becomes from two camshafts in the cylinder head older cars would have had one camshaft in the cylinder head okay operating your intake and your outlet valves okay your exhaust valves should I say not outlet so then as as modernising designs got better you had one cam for doing the intake and one cam for doing the exhaust valves and that meant you could flow the engine better and everything was better and that's the twin having two of them that, yeah twin cam now don't ask me why the Corollas got the nickname Twin Cam because there would have been several... Well, not, it wouldn't be very popular. In fairness, it would have been one of the first Twin Cam engines knocking around for the ordinary Joe Soap. Right. But, like, there would have been other cars and certainly have been nearly every car since has had two camshafts. And, but they just got that nickname here. Nowhere else in the world are they called Twin Cams, just here. That's cool. Yeah, so... Uh, like, the Mark II Escort was kind of to Ireland what the Twin Cam was to Japan. Which is why it's so why Corollas or twin cams are so popular over in Japan still, and Mark II Escorts are so popular here. I mean, you can buy a brand new Mark II Escort shell, a car that was produced in 1970. You can buy a brand new shell for one of those in Ireland at this moment in time. That's how popular they are. That's unheard of. Like maybe except maybe in America. Like sorry, you've lost me there now. How so? What? What's the car? Mark II Escort. I'm a Mark II Escort. Right. And you can from what year? I think now there's going to be guys, if there's guys listening to this incident, they're going to kill me. <laughs> uh, around the 70s, there was a Mark One Escort, obviously, and it went from maybe the late 60s to mid-70s, and then the Mark II Escort took over from mid-70s to early 80s. And again, if you went back to Ireland in, in 1979, 
every second car you would have seen would have been a Mark II Escort. Like they were okay, a family so car. So from that era, you can now today buy a new one. You can now today buy a new, not a new full car now, not a new fully built car, but a shell for one. Made then or made, made now, now to made those now. standards? Because of their popularity with rallying, certainly in Ireland and possibly in the UK, you can buy a brand new one of those shells. From where? From some company who has, I don't know where, I don't know exactly where they're coming from, but some company, as far as I'm aware, has bought the rights off Ford. I'm not sure if they've bought all the machinery that was used to make the thing, but they've certainly bought the rights off Ford to produce the shell. Okay. And the what, patent for the shape. Mean, the shell, I think, I think is about €7,000 for a shell. Nothing else attached to it. It's about €7,000, but it's a brand new shell. And when you say the shell, so when I see a burnt out car inside the road... We are looking at the shell practically. Yeah, an immaculate one of those. Yes, obviously yes. not burnt out. But yeah, so but if you factor that seven thousand into the, the budget that's required to go rallying to the standard that Irish rallying is done there, it's not a lot of money. Okay. So it's it's very affordable and very doable for the majority of people who rally those cars, you know. So like that's that kind of gives you an idea of of the love this country has for the Mark II Escort. And Japan has that same love for the Twin Cam which is a big part of the reason why we would have went to Japan, why we went to Japan in 2014. It was A, to meet that culture guy, and B, to see the culture over there that still surrounds that car. I mean, over there, they still, this kind of comes to my love for all things kind of car and not just drifting. Like, I love racing too. And in Japan, like, when, back in the day, I don't think they do it so much now, back in the day when they released a new sports car of some description, it wasn't uncommon to have a racing series based on that car. So Toyota themselves would have got twin cams, they would have got maybe 25 twin cams, said to companies or said to race teams, we're going to start a one-make series of these, one-make racing series. And what that means is 25 twin cams on a racing grid, racing around the track. And Toyota will set the formula for what you're allowed to do to the car, whether the engine can be modified, whether the suspension can be modified, what's done, what you can do, what you can't do. And that would have been done, say, when the car was released in 1983. So that would have promoted sales. You'd be, you'd be reading in magazines, oh my God, there's 25 of the car I'm just after buying racing around the track. That's cool. It's average, you yeah. imagine at the time how proud maybe you would have been or how excited you would have been by that. And what's, what's the idea of them telling you what you can and can't To regulate. Do? But why, why not almost go... Why not take the easy option and say... What am I trying to say? But you can't do anything. That yeah. Because it'd be there, boring. There, there's the fucking car. Because it'd be boring. Okay. Now you imagine not you put go it to a race track. The driver. It's all about the driver. Yeah, well, a driver can only car. do so much to make it exciting. If you go to a racetrack, there's a lot of different combinations of things that make it exciting. There's the smell. There's the sound. There's the... Obviously, the number of cars in it. But, like, the noise is such a big thing. And, again, why? Corollas are... We'll call them Corollas from now on. That's what I'm calling them. For the Twin cams. Them. Twin cams. We're going to call them Corollas from now on because that's what I'm used to calling them. Uh, or Mark II Escorts. They have a noise affiliated with them. And it's, it's a similar noise, I suppose, between the two of them. But it's a, it's a very distinguishable noise. And you know when you hear it, it puts a smile on your face. When you go to a racetrack, <laughs> like, it's about that. Like So if you had 25 standard Corollas driving down and they were just going, brruh, brruh, you'd be going, oh my God, this is boring. But if they're coming down the track and they're like, Meow! you're going wow the be ears is ringing that's class yeah so plus they have to go fast nobody wants to watch slow cars drive around a racing track and when you had the likes of Toyota back in this race series there was big money in it like I, I'd imagine I'm only guessing but I'd imagine 
it was at the level where maybe an engine was lasting one or two races. Fuck. And then it was being rebuilt or redone or whatever. Like that takes a lot of money. And again, for the um, uninitiated like myself, like what the fuck could possibly go wrong with an engine? So bearings badly? and wear and tear. Like you're when you build a race engine, say say my Corolla, say you bought a standard Corolla. They they rev pretty high standard. They rev to like seven and a half. They they will rev to eight if you want. But as soon as you go past that point, the more revs you add, the more wear there is. Okay. And with a small engine like that, you need to rev it to make power. So those cars probably would have been revving to ten thousand RPM, which is fucking crazy. Like that's high. So when you start revving an engine to ten thousand RPM, the life is just coming way down. Like the life of the engine, it's hours you're talking about, not kilometers. Like. Right, and how long typically do these races last? Or even a, yeah, I don't imagine. know, but I don't actually know that much about that original race series back in the day, other than a few YouTube videos, and I knew that it existed for the simple reason that Toyota created all those parts for the cars. Yeah. I, it's difficult. I'm sure you could find the information out if you wanted. There's probably but, different lengths for different tracks. Yeah, and like, that I don't well, know. It depends how what, what... It also depends what budget each race team had. Like, some race teams might... But I think it was pretty evenly matched, so I'd imagine they were putting... Now, I could be completely wrong in saying that. Maybe the rules and regulations were that one engine had to last you three races. But I would imagine with the revs they were revving to, they had to be replacing the engines fairly regular, or at least rebuilding them. Yeah, yeah. Which would entail putting new bearings, checking tolerances, all that type of thing. Up to make the sure cost and everything else. Yeah, yeah. So, that series that started in 1983, uh, I don't know how long it ran for. I'd say it ran till 87, maybe, until the car was finished, until the production of the car was finished enthusiasts in Japan got that up because there were so many of them that raced them they obviously got together one day or I don't know who organised it but they restarted that series so without Toyota's back and without just pure enthusiasts like me and you got together and said we should we should do this resurrect it, resurrect right? this it was called N2 that was the class N2 was the class we should resurrect this N2 racing series because there's so many of us that race these cars and if we just put a bit of regulation on it, we can all race them together. And they started this, like there's, a, and I, I, they're not just ordinary people that done that. They're garages who tuned and looked after these cars. There was a nice bit of money behind them, not crazy money, but decent money behind them. Mm. And it was a chance for those companies to advertise their work, what they could do. Like if they were winning the race, then people were going, oh, I want to go to Tech Arts to get my work done on my car because they're after winning the race there the last day. Now you're only talking maybe two or three races a year and, and only held purely for the love of it. like. But they kept that going right up until today. I mean, I was at one this year. I was in Japan this year and I was at one in 2014. And that was, like as somebody, like I said, I love racing as much as drifting. But like I went to Japan thinking I'm going to see a lot of drifting. And I sat in the stand and I watched those cars race around the place. I was like, oh, I think I want to do this. This is amazing. <laughs> but again, it's the community. It, there was tort, There was easily... In each race, easily 30 cars and maybe three races. And you're talking about top-level cars where people have just put their soul into that car like, to put it together, to have it there. Probably every penny they have put it into it just to have it there to do that race because they love it so much. And how many people are, are there watching? Like, is it, you know, 200, 10,000? No, nah, you're 200. You're more like... To, I'm not going to say as low as 200. There was a lot of people there, but it's not a... Na- it's not like... There could have been somebody 10 minutes down the road that didn't know that event was on. Yes. You needed to love the car to know that it was on. And again, the internet makes that more widely known. But like we obviously would have known it was on for quite some time because we'd planned a trip to Japan to go and see it. And, you know, what uh, What does a trip to Japan cost you? You know, roughly, there, thereabouts. About three and a half grand. If Fuck, you to do okay. it right. 
Yeah. Now we really worked ourselves hard when we went there. We rented a car and we put definitely 4,000 kilometers up in the car in 12 days. Fuck. Sleeping <laughs> in the car, not sleeping in hotels, just to get the driving done, to get to the next thing, to get as much in as possible. Because it's so, it's such a disaster that it's so far away. But because it's so far away, you need to make the most of that. I mean, th- there was some serious sleep deprivation going on there, but it was so worth it. Like, you would, like, that, watching that N2 racing was fairly early on in the trip, so I wasn't too tired, I don't think. But there was other, like, when we went to see Kaicho, the guy I was talking about earlier, when we went to see him drift, which nearly put me back onto the drifting thing watching him drive, but <laughs> uh, it did put me back onto the drifting thing. That's why I came back and did more of it. But, uh, to, like, by the time we got to him, like, you, it was getting to the stage where you were walking around and you were just falling asleep. You were falling out of your standings. You were sitting in the car and you going, oh, one of you have to drive. I'm going to crash the van. This type of thing was going on. And to me, it was proof that how much I loved what I was there to do because you pull into a circuit and as you're pulling in, you're ap- you're dead. You've got nothing left. And the next thing you just hear one of those cars drive around, you're like, oh, what's going on? I want to get out and see that. And you'll do the whole day walking around, looking at all this stuff, talking away. And it's not until it's all over and at the end of the day, you get back into the van, you go, oh my God, I still haven't slept. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you just kind of put everything into it and it's so worth it. The best thing I've ever done is going over there just to see it, see those people and they love to have it. It's a different world over there though. It's not, you know, the grass is always greener thing. Like, yeah, yeah. They definitely have a better, far superior car culture over there than we have here. And more tracks and more people and more parts and everything for it. And they're so better catered for it. But they work really hard for it. Like, I don't think that any of those guys would have the luxury of coming over here on a Wednesday evening and just having a chat with you. They work around the clock. Right. Crazy hours. To do what we can probably, we definitely can't, do it to the level that they do it here no matter how much money we have because we don't have the culture but they work hard for it like it's not all rosy like and is there people is is there have you a Japanese counterpart that would travel all the way to Ireland uh, to see uh, no, something or do no. anything because we don't we've nothing here people would be annoyed for me about saying this but if I lived in Japan there's, there's nothing here unless you want to see over this end the UK for professional motorsport for just professional, proper motorsport. I don't think there's really anywhere else in the world that can touch that. When you consider of maybe the 10 or 12 F1 teams that there is, I think 10 of them are in the UK. Base, born based bred. in the UK. Born, bred, based in the UK. They are UK racing teams. A professional and, motorsport. That, that, what I'm getting at there is, I think that would be the only thing that would attract Japanese people over here. I don't think they would come over here for the for my level of car culture because it's just inferior to theirs in every way and if there was anybody listening to me they're probably getting annoyed about me saying that but until you go over there and you see what they have it's not easy for me to say that like I live here I love my cars here but we just we're, we're just pathetic in comparison to what they can do like right do you know what I mean their they're, they're resources their circuits like like I said Mandela was their only circuit in Japan you're Two hours away from probably three international circuits. But I suppose just just thinking out loud, when you think of the automobile industry in Ireland in comparison to the automobile yeah, industry over there, it all feeds itself. Like you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? How many million people is in Japan like compared to here? It's 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 an unrealistic thought to think that this little country, this little country, does quite well for itself. I think with car culture, considering the size of it and the amount of people in it. Yeah, I think it punches above its weight. It punches across the board. well above its weight. Like and. Uh, I hate to sound like I'm giving out, but I, I'm just a realist. Oh, no, you're saying a fact. That's, that's Yeah, it's just a fact. Like, and, and 
I've seen people on the internet get quite annoyed about this type of thing when it's talked about. And I think they take it personally like it's a matter of pride for the country. And I'm not saying it. I'm not saying that I don't have pride for what we do. In fact, I'm very proud of the majority of what we've managed to achieve. And now we've probably brought, taken a lot of things from Japan and a lot of them have gone to wreck and ruin. But there is the core people there who do it right. And I think we're doing well that we have those people. Like you might have a country, say Germany, for example. Say you are a Corolla enthusiast in Germany. You'd have to come to Ireland to get parts. Really, yeah? Yeah, do you know what I mean? For, for To be interested in, in, in drifting or rear-wheel drive Japanese cars. From the fucking 80s. From the 80s. <laughs> if, you're, if you are that guy, <laughs> you need to come to Ireland to get the parts. Hilarious. I mean, if, when, so when somebody advertises parts for them on Facebook, like the amount of like Greek guys and German guys and that going, oh, will you post? And it's just like, no, I won't post because people don't want to let the stuff go. Do you know what I mean? If you keep it here, you might eventually need it again and get it back again. <laughs> you know, that kind of way. Because they're getting... It's not that the cars are getting rare. I suppose they are getting rare, but the prices of everything for them has gone crazy in the last while. And they've made it unsustainable to, I suppose, do what I do. If I was starting now, I couldn't do what I'd done with that car. You need a decade of collecting shit, Collecting basically. shit for cheap money and, and making do what you can. I mean, my car at the minute is... There's not a whole lot of original Corolla left on it. I mean, the shell, like the, the basis of the car is there. The engine is still, you know, it's still all Corolla, but it's all been replaced with racing parts over the years. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't like to add up how much it's cost me. I'd say I'd get sick if I knew how much it cost me. But the development of that car over the last 10 years, there's very few, say, parts off the original car that I would still have on the car. And ballpark, just to give people an idea of what we're talking about, like what's... When I say what's the car worth, I don't mean what would it sell for. Can you give me two prices for it? Can you give me what... I don't know. My car would be an unusual one to give you a price for what it would sell for because you've got... You've kind of got two ways of looking at it. Say you're thinking to yourself, Corollas are getting rare now. I want to buy a good example. Is my car a good example? I don't think so because it's got no interior. It's got a lot of the original... It doesn't have the original stuff that made the car the car, if you know what I mean. So... In that aspect, for a collector, I don't think it's worth much money versus a completely standard, very clean car. I mean, the car's 30 years old. It's a rare thing to have a, a completely standard one of those cars really clean. Now, those cars, a genuinely very clean, completely standard car is probably making 25 to 30 grand. Okay. Which is ridiculous. And so so yours is worth less than that, 15, 20? I'd say to the right person, somebody might give me 15 grand for and if car. you were to add up all the bits and pieces you oh. put into it and time and everything else time if you did, even like taking the time in would be just be crazy I'd say over 20 okay but that's over 10 years like yeah yeah you know and that's including everything like that's including all the time all the parts and everything like there's some people that could spend 10 in a year uh, you know and maybe not get the driving out of it that I've got. Like, I'm lucky in the fact that I still have that car, that I've never destroyed it. Like, And can you describe to people, like, when you when you sit into it, are you, like, is it in a leather seat or is it in a racing oh bucket seat yeah, type no, thing? Or? There's absolutely no creature comforts to it whatsoever. <laughs> None whatsoever. Radio, you know, No, no heat mats. or no radio, no floor mats. Electric windows. No. Wind down uh, windows I, even. If I could get rid of the wind down windows, I probably would. <laughs> like I've gone to the stage, like weight is a big thing. So whatever you can take out of the car. Like to, to give you kind of the basis of what the recipe for a Corolla is, for a fun Corolla, if you're racing with it is, they don't have a lot of horsepower. They've got, my car I think has 165 horsepower, say. 
your A4 or A6, whatever it is out there, probably has 150. I think it's 175. 175. Like, there you go. You've got more horsepower than my race car. Is. Yeah, but my car probably weighs but your twice what yours does. Yeah, like my car, I don't, I've never weighed it, but like, there's no seats. There's absolutely no interior in the car whatsoever. There's a dash, which is a plastic dash from the 80s. It's a very light thing. There's a seat, and then there's wheels, a gear stick, and a handbrake. That's it. No passenger seat, no seats in the back. I have a passenger seat in the minute, but I don't like driving with passengers because you spend all this money taking away out of the car, putting a carbon fibre bonnet on it, putting plastic windows into it. And yours this. has all this? Yeah. And you do all that, and then you go and you put some fat fucker into the passenger seat, and you're going, well, that's that, like I spent all that money getting rid of that, and now you're sitting in the car like a complete <laughs> waste of time. like, And you feel it like. You feel it. A person sitting beside you. When you are when you get a car, when you have a car that is dependent on being lightweight, if you put a person in, in beside the car, you're going, what the fuck's wrong with my car? You know yeah. it straight away. You'd have to, put it this way, you'd have to have a lot of, you know, floor mats and different things to make up, you know, 90 kg of, a, yeah. of your average man. Of your day, average man. Like, and then it's in, is it in a good place in the car? Where the weight is in the car is important too, which is another reason why the Corolla was popular because it had a nice distribution of weight from standard. Um, like my car, ballpark figure around, I'd say around eight ten or eight twenty kilograms. Okay. Which and again, like your to give people an idea, your average kind of four door family. I'd saloon. say an A four weighs about weighs about fourteen hundred kilos. As a guess, I could be grossly overestimating that, but I'd say about fourteen hundred kilos. So you're talking about six hundred kilos out of the car. Okay. Which is a lot. Massive, yeah, massive. Which is a lot. Now, that could be a big overestimation, but just just the figure that's coming to my head there now. Like, it might be more like 300 kilos less, or 350, I don't know. But I'd say around four or 500 kilos anyway, let's call it that, which is massive. Absolutely massive. Which makes that car, when you get into it and drive it, feels quite fast. It's actually, in the grand scheme of things, it's not very fast, but when you're in it, and everything is vibrating around you, <laughs> and there's no carpets and no nothing, you're just... Like, it's a fairly inhospitable place to be. Like, in my car at the minute, I still have to drive my car down to these race days. I don't but, have a van or trailer. Okay. So, I still have it insured, and I still have a tax, but thankfully it's 1986, so the tax is only 56 euro on it, and the insurance, I think, is classic, it's only 200. So it doesn't break the bank to have that on it. Yeah. It's nice to have it insured anyway, in case that happens. What, did it, what does it do to the gallon? Uh, you'd be surprised it's actually quite so, easy on fuel because it's so light because it's so light and it's only 1.6 like I was just going to say what engine's in it it's a 1.6 petrol yeah so it's the original engine that's a big thing for me swapping engines is a big no-no with me. <laughs> big no-no with me anybody that has a Corolla who doesn't have the 1.6 4AG engine in it it's not a Corolla I won't even hear tell of it right <laughs> and people would I, again people would take the head of you for saying stuff like that but I just I have no interest in it if it doesn't have the 4AG yeah because that is such a part of the character of the car. That's why people fell in love with it first. You take that away, it's not that car anymore. Yeah, of course. That's how it is for me. And that makes no sense. I mean, if you if you want to think about it on a purely sensible point of view, say, what did I say my car was? 165 horsepower. Yeah. Say I wanted, say I put money into that engine and I wanted to get it to 210 horsepower. That would probably cost me about 10,000 euro. To go from, sorry, what, 165 to, to go 210? from 165 to 210 because okay. there's no turbo in the car because it's a small engine. To produce more power, you need to build it to this fine-toleranced racing specification engine where, you know, it's basically at risk. It's like coming back to what we were saying earlier on about revving it so high and you're putting the engine at risk. 
it's just such a gamble to put that money into it to make so little power. That's not a lot of power. I could go and I could buy a standard Honda engine or let's say a standard Nissan engine with a turbo on it for 1500 quid. Put it into the car with some hard work out in the shed and a welder and do this and that and then I could probably have 300 horsepower for about two grand. Fuck, okay. So it's all about... Th- so there, the there is no sense to it. Like it's it's again it's the purest thing. There is no sense to it whatsoever, but it's the love of the thing. But it that's what makes that it so engine. cool. Like. Yeah, that's what makes. And I'm glad to hear like somebody has possibly hasn't looked into it as much or doesn't know much about it. That can, see, can, can see that point, like because it's a hard point to get across to somebody who loves cars, because you have the type of people who love cars that are just going, yeah, but you can go faster. You going, it's not about that. If I wanted to go faster, I probably wouldn't have bothered with that Corolla in the first place because it was yeah. just a bad starting point. If you want to think about it like that, like. <laughs> a thirty-year-old Corolla. <laughs> a thirty-year-old Corolla. Like you want to go fast? That's not a good way to go about it. Like yeah, you know. So you have that aspect of it. That's kind of coming back to the purest thing. It's coming back to the early type of drifting. Like it does not make sense. I think yeah. that's an important thing to say about it. My car doesn't make sense. Right, well, listen, I'm going to move away from the twin cam because I get a feeling we could be here for the next fucking 48 yeah, hours talk talking literally yeah. nothing more about that particular car. Yeah, and I'd imagine a lot of people have switched off. <laughs> <laughs> so, other types of driving. So, just basically, based on what you said there, I would summarise you not as maybe a bi racer, but you still definitely are. <laughs> Uh, I so think you're we can a, finish this up now actually a, you're, you're practically a, a, just a twin cam enthusiast or am I underselling your other loves I mean yeah like this is what I was supposed kind of before I come over here tonight I was afraid that it'd sound like that I don't I love all other cars again I'd like to bring it back to the point of it, it's the purest thing applies for me all over okay uh, so what's what's second second to the twin cam is probably the escort is it no well not not for me i love them it's hard to categorize them like that like the twin cam is definitely number one no question about it i am obsessed with those cars but i will love any car that's built with the purest mentality with the original engine that's built with heart which that's built with a job i mean if 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 anybody wants to see somebody who can explain things properly like what the point i'm trying to make properly they should probably go on and look up chris harris on youtube now he's a car reviewer that reviews new cars. Is he on the new Top Gear? He's on the new Top Gear. Yeah, even though he would was, know his name. So. Yeah, before Chris Harris was on Top Gear, he was he had a YouTube channel called Chris Harris on Cars. He still has it, does he? He still has it. He's a still million updated. odd subscribers, all the rest. Yeah, he's he was actually I think he was on Joe Rogan's podcast before, and he is able to probably put in words with what I've been trying to say for the last hour and a half. He can put that in words very easily. He's very good at that. He can describe the feeling that a car gives to you. He can describe the reasons why uh, that say you know these new cars with the the flappy paddle shifts the thing that you just pull the lever and it yeah, goes yeah. up a gear like Chris Harris will be the first to say to you that that makes a car so much faster but if you break driving down what way did he put it if you break driving down to the binary of what it is of what makes it enjoyable then he would rather have a manual gearbox because that's another thing for him to be thinking about. Like, the, the the changing of the gears is such a big aspect of enjoying driving something. Yeah. You know, matching the revs when you're going down a gear, that's another thing you have to do and change gear. And it's another thing you have to think about. And he says, whereas if you're driving a car with the flappy paddles, it's faster. You can concentrate more on steering, but are you having more fun? Yeah, like, you see, I, I'm not a, a massive, you know, petrol head or a car yeah. head. You know, I, I like my cars, um but I, I do genuinely like driving. I, mm. I couldn't imagine myself ever buying uh automatic gearbox. Eh? Yeah. I yeah. like I like the 
I don't know. Is it, there's something. There's a primal thing. There to is. It. Yeah. Like, there's there a primal is. thing too, and he explains it quite well because I mean, you're talking about a guy who has driven. The reason I love him so much is because he's got my mentality, probably a little broader minded, but I'm pretty broad minded. It's probably not coming across, but I am fairly broad minded when it comes to cars. But I base coming back to the thing about the Ferraris of not being able to afford it and it being out of reach. Chris Harris is this guy that is driving the latest, newest Ferrari. And he's in a position to confirm to me that going, yeah, the latest new Ferrari is absolutely unbelievable. But I've got a piece of shit Peugeot 205 at home and it's just as much fun to drive. And it only cost me £5,000. And you're kind of going, all right, well, my, my thinking, my theory is somewhere on the money because there's a guy who's qualified to say that. Yes, of course. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and he would explain, if you were to listen to him, he would get across the point that I'm trying to make an awful lot better because obviously it's his job to do that. But he is my car mentality. His way right. of looking at cars is my way of looking at cars. It's funny you say that about, the, you know, the, the, the kind of the feel and the rawness and the, the primalness of, of, of driving cars. Because am I right in saying that Formula One drivers, if you ask them what's their favourite type of driving, they'll often say go-karts. Yeah. Because again, you can't get because more no bare bullshit. bones. Yeah, there's no bullshit. There's no that guy has another fifty million more than I do. Like yes. a Formula One driver, at the end of the day, he wants to be better than you. And if he goes out in the best car on the track and he beats you, that's to him. That's not him beating you. He knows he's in a much better car. And with Formula One, Formula One's terrible. I have no interest in Formula One. Really, no interest whatsoever. The, the nerd in me loves Formula One. I, I love, I love the trivia of it. I love uh, that they don't put air in the tires. They put hydrogen because it's more yeah, fucking stable. Or, is yeah. it nitrogen? Yeah, nitrogen, whatever yeah. it is. And the, I love, the, I love this idea that you. By right, you should be crossing the finish line on the fumes of the fuel yeah. because the science behind it is brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, I, I love that. I nerd out on that yeah. all day. But again, watching it, fucking bam, bam, bam. There's no overtaking, and again, it's because of the science behind it. This is what happens when money is just let flow at, like because of the science behind it, because of the aerodynamics. So the aerodynamics, if you're not aware, I'm sure you are aware, is spoilers all around the car to push the car into the ground. I believe that hypothetically they could be driven upside down yeah yeah. so like a car might develop say the car weighs 600 kilos if it develops 700 kilos of downforce then you can drive it upside down theoretically so for people listening on the roof of a tunnel say yes so say you had a curved tunnel a perfectly circular tunnel and you took off I'd, I'd say you'd have to be going maybe 100 miles an hour or something for the for the air to be passing over the car yeah fast to push it down to push so it's it down. like the opposite of a plane basically yeah opposite of a plane yeah downforce yeah, as call, opposed to upforce. As opposed to upforce or lift. Yeah, of course. Um, so in that aspect of it, again, the science behind it is brilliant. And I think that science appeals to everybody. It's just like, it's just, the numbers are just crazy. But it doesn't make for good racing. Because if you're dependent on downforce to go around a corner quick and you come up and you're after catching a car on three laps and then you get up behind them, the, the, you might have heard them on the racing calling it dirty air. So when you come behind another car, He's disrupting all the air because he's using all the air to downforce. So the air is kind of all over the place by the time it hits your car because you're so close behind him. Yes. So when the car gets up close to the car in front, it can rarely make the overtaking manoeuvre because it can't corner as quick anymore because it's not getting downforce. Okay, we go a bit deeper onto that now a bit because in cycling, there's drafting, is that what it's called? That's a different thing. That, That happens in Formula One as well, but that's in a straight line. So you can imagine in a straight line, drafting is, they're, they're breaking the air. So there's no air hitting the front of the car, so you can actually go faster. Yes. And remember that 
Another thing worth noting is that if a Formula 1 car has a lot of downforce, that slows it down in a straight line. It's literally trying to catch the air to push it into the ground, which means it's less slippery like. Yeah, it's not Downforce is yeah. faster around the corner, slower on a straight. And that's why a Formula 1 car doesn't look aerodynamic. Yeah, it doesn't look like, like a, this a, slippery object. Yeah, like just, a, a, like a, it is to a certain degree, but they're directing air into the right places. But like you've got mad angles and shit. There's no, like Formula 1 cars out. aren't streamlined, really. I mean, they obviously are to a degree, but to, to look at for the for the person who doesn't know what they're looking at, my car, a big A6, a big saloon, it looks more streamlined. It actually That's looks more aerodynamic. Like miles per gallon. And to, of course, yeah, it's not to stick it to the road. And to look nice as well. But like if Formula One wanted to be more streamlined, if there was, you would get, a, if you had a track with a really, really, really long straightener, it's not that you'd see less fins on those cars, but they'd be angled back so that they'd catch less air, which would allow the car to go faster in a straight line. Yeah, of course. Which comes back to your drafting thing. So if I'm driving behind you, there's no air hitting all the wings on my car. So I can go that little bit faster. Yes. To pull out past you. But if I'm in a corner, I don't have the air hitting the front of the car to push the tyres into the ground to grip more. Yeah, and another cool thing I've, I've heard, and you'll be able to expand on this, is if you if you don't, in a Formula 1 car, say, I don't know if it's the same for other race cars or in rallying, but if you go around a corner at, let's say... 100 miles an hour you'll fly around it but if you go around the same corner at 80 miles an hour you'll skid off because you're not going fast enough to create the yeah. downforce to keep you on the road and that's a it's a real weird counterintuitive type difficulty thing difficulty like. about it like that's why they like it's such a pity that it's not exciting to watch because the level of driver skill required to drive one of those cars is amazing did you ever see the episode of Top Gear where Richard Hammond tried to drive the F1 car I did he couldn't start it well, yeah, well, that's one thing. That's, yeah, yeah. That's fair enough. That's just him being shit. That's all that is. But, uh, like, if you... You have to... The brakes... What you're after saying about the cornering is right. And that also goes for the brakes. If me or you went out in that car, and, like, even with... I don't have much experience of driving, but say I have a certain level of experience of driving a car around a racing track, I wouldn't even get the temperature into the brakes to get the brakes to work in that car. <laughs> I've heard that with the tyres as well. If they're not hot enough, they're not sticky enough. And again, they won't grip Yeah, if you can imagine a window of performance with temperature 0 and 100, like you have to get it to the temperature very, very quickly or the car won't work. The car just won't work. It'll just spin off the track. The downforce won't work. The tyres won't work. The brakes won't work. They're all designed to work at these crazy high temperatures because those cars have to do 50 laps flat out. So everything is designed to operate in that 300 degrees to 700 degrees temperature range. Yeah, if, if it's not boiling, it doesn't work. Yeah, because if you design it to work from cold, then it won't work when it's hot. There is yes, no perfect course. material to do everything. So that's why they're so hard to drive, which makes them so amazing. But it just doesn't translate to exciting racing. And why is that? I mean, what what is it that's not exciting about it? There's no overtaking. There's like, and because when you say it's there's such no overtaking, science, what do you mean there's no overtaking? Like, they're not able to... If, if I overtake you, it's because it's all strategy. It's like playing chess. Remember you said there a few minutes ago that they can work it out till they're running on the fumes when you're crossing the finish line. Yes. They know everything. They know 10 laps before Michael Schumacher passes out Lewis Hamilton that he's going to pass him between lap 12 and lap 14. And because of the way the strategies are done, if I pass you, you can nearly never have the car underneath you to fight back. You're at a different point in the race. You took your pit stop at a different time. Your tyres are 10 laps older than mine. You can't fight back. And they, and they never let cars go wheel to wheel because it's a it's a more intelligent way to race. It's a safer way to win the race, to strategize it. 
And to try and pass them while they're in the pits or I, something. I was just going to say it's it's a real strategy thing. It's almost like American football. It's not so much watching the guys on the pitch. It's what the coaches are doing. And they're you know, the guys that's winning the race. Yeah, I mean, the driver yeah. can do certain certain things, but I I would say like there's there's definitely different levels of driver in Formula One at the minute. But like you're talking about, if the skill level was zero to a hundred, you're talking ninety eight to a hundred. That's the level of drivers. I firmly believe that you could take a driver out of a of the back of the grid and put him into the best car on the grid and he's going to be first or second the next day out. Like, Do you know what I mean? The, the talent is there. It's the car that's underneath him and that's unfortunate. On the flip side, have you ever heard of MotoGP? I've heard of it. Couldn't tell you what it is. MotoGP is motorbike racing, is, is motorbike racing of Formula 1 proportions. So it's, it's, it's the top level of motorbike racing. That will, anybody who watches that will be on their edge of the seat watching it. Da, is that the the TT? No, that that's right? the Isle of Man TT. That's a whole different level of lunacy. That's just, <laughs> that's, they are the bravest men on the face of the planet. That's a whole different game ball altogether. But like MotoGP will be on circuits. The Isle of Man is a road race. Okay. So MotoGP is on a circuit and it probably shares a lot of the same circuits that Formula One races on. But it is at the same level. It is the peak which, of which are what? Race. Sorry, Silverstone is one. What are the big yeah, names? There's about fifteen. Silverstone they race on Silverstone. They race on well, the Formula One races on Spa. MotoGP races on Motegi. They race on all the big tracks. They don't. They try not to share the same tracks because share the wealth. Like why would you? Why would the two of them race? Then another track won't be able to survive because it's not getting a big race. Okay. Yes. Yes. But they, there are some tracks to cross over. Silverstone is one of them. Uh, I don't know what other Circuit of America's in Texas is another one that crosses over but there isn't many that cross over so on the MotoGP again for the uninitiated myself included one thing that I do know about bikes is that they're way way faster than Formula 1 cars they're not are they not they're way slower than Formula 1 cars sorry yeah round the corners yeah well in a straight line it'd be much of a muchness I'd say taking off a bike might get a bit of a jump I don't know but I'd say I always thought line, bikes were way faster. No? On, on Silverstone, I looked this up before just to see. I kind of had a feeling because of the downforce, because they can corner so much quicker. I think a Formula One car is about forty seconds faster around Silverstone than a MotoGP. Bike. And put that into perspective, forty seconds off like what's the lap? Oh, I because don't a lap, know. you know, ten minutes. Well, you can or, imagine. You know, well, think of it this way: you cross it, you're standing at the start finish line of the track, and a Formula One passes you. Now count to forty. I know what you mean. Yeah, and one. And it's a MotoGP two. bike passing you. I yeah. mean, you imagine sitting on a MotoGP bike now and some guy, if you were hanging on to the back of some guy, your heart will be in your... They are moving like... They're not slow, but that's the speed of Formula 1 compared to everything else. I remember a friend of mine who was into his bikes, um, he was telling me he got tunnel vision. Are you familiar with that? Or? It never happened to me. I know what it is, all right, but... Yeah, but for what he was saying was when he when he's in a straight line on his bike, he, he had some fucking firebird, if that rings fire a bell. Blade. Fire blade. Yeah. Um, but he was saying basically that once you get to such a certain speed and you're you're obviously looking dead straight ahead of you, you're on a dead straight level road, the horizon, this is the way he put it now, I, I've, I can't speak from experience at all, but the way he put it was the horizon is just going past you. Every like you know, constantly to the yeah. point whereby it's like Back to the Future when the car got up to a certain speed and it's just all you can see is yeah. like a little window out the the front of you. Well, you can imagine, imagine on a motorbike. Like a motorbike is such accessible speed. I love motorbikes. Possibly, I would probably love them more than cars if they didn't scare the share. They're too fucking dangerous. They're too dangerous. It's so unfortunate, but like it's just so way too easy to die in a motorbike. And 
like it's not that you have to be ballsy to ride one there's plenty of people out there who can enjoy them and be sensible on it but what annoys me about the motorbike is that somebody else can take your life away without you making a mistake a friend of mine Kieran Carty was in um, hospital in Navan he broke his hip on a camping trip back in the, back in the day but uh <laughs> Stupid cunt. Climbed a tree to get firewood. Oh, my God. Pulled pulled the branch. I pulled it towards him. It broke. He fell, obviously, onto a fucking car park as it happened and <laughs> broke his hip. So uh, he was in hospital on you, but the guy beside him was in essentially a fucking full body cast. And uh, Cardi got chatting to him and asked him, you know, what happened? And he was like, oh, he came off again. It was the... F- this is a good few years ago. It was probably 15 years ago. But he said at the time it was the fastest what was it, the fastest commercially made bike in the world at the time, whatever Fire that was. I, I can't remember, to be honest. I remember that that fact that it was the yeah. fastest commercially made one. But um, he was sitting at a set of traffic lights and just minding his own business. He was, it was at red. He was just sitting there and the next one, boom, in from behind. Some lad didn't see him, didn't see the red light, whatever it was, oh, no. s- sitting on his bike. Like if that was a car, more than likely it'd just be an annoying day and an insurance claim. Yeah, yeah, Do you know yeah, what I mean? yeah. He, and, uh, he fucking made shite in me bumper. It's so like. unfortunate, like, it's so unfortunate because they're so cool. Like, you're talking about spending money for performance, like, four or five grand gets you a bike that'll do 160 mile an hour from here to 500 meters away or something. Yeah, know, yeah, like. colossal. But, like, take that's, off. go back to the tunnel vision thing. You can imagine if you are on a bike doing 160 mile an hour, think of it this way how far ahead do you have to look to anticipate what's coming? Because you're getting there very quickly. Oh, yeah. That's where the tunnel vision thing coming from. You're looking as far ahead as you possibly can because that's where you need to look. But sure, as, soon as, you, as soon as you focus on the furthest thing away from you, you're there. past you. You're yeah. there. Like, I, I don't know who said it. I remember my uncle saying it. Like, uh, you'd be familiar with the, with the local town and stuff around here. A, a guy on a Suzuki bike, he was he was talking about the first time he rode it. And he was like, I left Kilberry at six o'clock and I was in Navin at six o'clock. <laughs> 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 I just thought it was a great one. I just go on. And they're just so cool. Like, but you just couldn't have one. But to go back to the MotoGP is that that's exciting because all of a sudden it's all about the rider. The bike can be good and there is differences between the bikes, but a really good rider can make a bad bike win. Much more so than Formula One. Way though. much more so than Formula Well, think about it. The rider is manoeuvring the bike every which way. Now, a good bike is a good bike. But like at the minute, the world champion who was recently won the world championship again is a guy called Mark Marquez. He's a young Spanish guy. Like, for the first half of the season, his bike was just not competitive. But he was still pulling in results on it. And, like, if you watch the guy on a good bike, he's coming around and it's all smooth and he's managing it nicely. Like, Marquez would be keeping up with him, but every time he come around the corner, he'd be going, oh, he's going to fall off. The thing would be yeah, shaking. Yeah, he's on the reds. He is yeah, on the yeah. absolute limit, but he's able to get away with it. And that's what... You could have the equivalent of him in Formula 1, which would be, I suppose, that Max Verstappen guy. And he's not able to shine so much unless it rains or something like that that he can yeah his skill that, can come to the fore his skill can come to the fore and that's why I like MotoGP and in MotoGP you might get in Formula 1 you might get if you get one overtaking a lap it'll never be fighting fought back on or there might be in a race say on track overtake so not including when somebody pits and you pass them out I don't know I'm, I'll throw it out there and say there, there might be 10 overtakes in a race and the majority of them would probably be the cars at front lapping the back markers. In MotoGP, you could have, there was a race there during the year where there was easily 10 to 12 overtakes in one lap. 
at the very oh, front with just people jo- and they hit off each other and they're doing crazy speeds and the bikes are wobbling like I dare anybody not to be excited by a good MotoGP race because you're looking at it going that is lunacy <laughs> you know and it's just brilliant to watch and you can appreciate the rider and the more you get to know the characters behind the sport which is be the same as MMA it's why people love Conor McGregor so much because he's a character and those characters are in MotoGP and they shine through better in MotoGP because you'll know a certain rider is coming up and he's getting fast and he's starting to come towards first and you're going, this lad's a lunatic, this lad will elbow somebody off the track, <laughs> you know? And you're just getting excited by that because you're waiting for him to do his stereotypical thing and nine times out of ten he'll do it. And it's just really entertaining. So, like, if anybody was to start watching motorsport, I would not go near Formula 1 because you'll just be going, this is a load of shit. And I think that's why people have a bad, imperson- or bad impression of motorsport because of that. I, I was just going to say, if anyone, myself included, like, I've I've... There's been a number of times I've kind of tried to get into, and I, I nearly said it there, I tried to get into Formula One, thinking Formula One was racing. Yeah, it's Do you know that kind of way? Yeah, like it is the pinnacle. You can't say it's not the pinnacle because it's the most technically advanced, it's got the most money in it, and it's got the best paid and best drivers in the world. It has all of the ingredients, but it just doesn't have the racing. And motorbikes inherently will be better racing anyway because they're naturally lean towards the riders a lot more. But MotoGP has everything that Formula One has, but it's got unbelievable racing. And what about Ireland, like, in, in relation to the best, you know, bikers, is that what they're called, or in the world? As in, how successful are Irish motorcycle riders? Riders, yeah, yeah sorry. Um, well, you've got uh, Eugene, Eugene, oh God, I can't believe, I can't remember his name, Laverty. Michael Laverty and Eugene Laverty, who were very successful in British superbikes and world superbikes, which would be a very high level, and then Eugene made it to MotoGP, and done quite well on a bike that wouldn't have really been a good bike. I'm not sure why he left it, because I thought he'd done very well for himself. And but, sorry, why why would sorry. why would a world class rider be on a bike that wasn't as good as everybody else's? Because Because how many world class riders is there at the same time? To what? The, to compete against or to, to compete for the ride, to compete for the, the seat on that bicycle. And for a lower team, they're called satellite teams in MotoGP. So teams that don't have factory back and that Honda aren't pumping money in, that Yamaha aren't pumping money into. When a rider comes to that team, he's expected to bring a certain amount of sponsorship. Like a lot of what people don't know about motorsport is like say the f- top five teams in Formula One or MotoGP the riders are probably being paid to be there because they're the best and they've proved themselves in all the disciplines. Everything after that, the drivers and the riders have to bring sponsorship with them. They buy their seat in that. Now, the sponsors probably pay their wage, but uh, for example, um, going back to the WRC, there's an Irish driver in the WRC at the minute. Craig, World Rally Championship. World Rally Championship. Craig Breen is his name. He's doing really well for himself. But I've heard, and I don't know how true this is, that to drive, he drives for Citroen, a factory Citroen team. But I think he had to bring €2 million Euro in sponsorship with him for Citroën to let him drive that car. Citroën didn't pay him €2 million. Euro. He brought €2 million Euros worth of sponsorship to that team and they let him drive the car. Now, my, Fuck. Like the, I, that, I, I'm not sure it was Craig Breen. It was somebody anyway, that story. Around the time that the WRC was in Ireland, that story was was going around because one of the drivers done it. It could have been Chris Meek. I can't remember. Well, let, let's say you're completely off on the, on the figure. The sentiment is right, though. The sentiment is right. The, 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 the driver has to bring... Yeah, on the lower level teams that aren't supported by factories that can pump 30 or 40 million into a, a racing team for a season, they need to bring sponsorship money with them. 
whereas a footballer gets paid a hundred thousand a week just because he's good. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah, that's yeah, what you're dealing with. Without bringing anything there. else, so. yeah, and that's that's just that's just the way motorsport is. And to answer your question, Eugene Lavery, he's probably every bit as good as as the top riders. But in the likes of MotoGP, you have somebody who's a world class rider, and then you've got somebody who's just oh my god, was he born on a motorbike? And that's where Mark Marquez fits in. Have you heard of Valentino Rossi? Yes, everybody's heard of Valentino Rossi. He's just the goat, they call him, the greatest of all time. Yes, yeah. He's at, I don't know how many years, the guy is old and he's still a fucking genius. Like, he's still winning races. And you say old, like, is there an average age for a, like, uh, a I don't know what the average or... age for a motorbike rider is. Some of them surprise me with how old they are, but I think he's definitely heading for his 40s. Oh, fuck. He's racing. He won his first championship in the 90s, I think. Like, he's had a long time. And he's still competitive. Like, you couldn't write Valentino Rossi off to win a championship next year. I know what you mean, yeah. Do you know what I mean? But that's kind of the nature of MotoGP anyway. It could be anybody. It could be five riders that could win the championship next year. Which whereas, makes it exciting. Which makes it exciting. Whereas Formula 1, Lewis, Hamm- Lewis Hamilton or Sebastian Vettel is going to win a champi- championship next year. Yeah, it's like the Scottish... Uh, Celtic, yeah. Yeah, do yeah. you know what I mean? Same thing, yeah. Same thing as that. It's just, that's why the MotoGP is more exciting. And then... Then you have the other aspect of things to go back to the more amateur level of things is what you said earlier about the TT, the Isle of Man TT. And I think that's probably the most awesome spectacle of motorsport there is. So that's on the roads? That's on the roads. That is just, that is a beautiful blend of skill and balls like a Bengali tiger. That's just, <laughs> it's just, it's lunacy. I don't know how it's still legal because the amount of people that die doing it every year. But I love it because it's like our last little link to the way things used to be years ago do you know when you look at something years ago and you go oh my god like Horland they weren't wearing helmets or gum shields or anything yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah there wasn't a tooth in the fucking there wasn't pitch, a like. Tooth in the pitch <laughs> like and here's this sport that's still at that like of course they've got all the gear but like you can have all the gear in the world you know it's not going to save you if you hit a fucking side of a pub at 190 miles an hour do you know what I mean it's just I, I love the Isle of Man TT for that and it, it divides so many opinions because is there like, a oh, call for it to be banned or some people are giving it to think about it but I think I don't think it's fair to say that people are should be allowed to make the decision if they want to go and do that and just because it's in the public eye people are very opinionated on it like I I, uh, I work with a, a girl who likes climbing mountains right and she went to some mountain in Russia it's the highest peak in Europe I think It's if it's not it's up there yeah, yeah. she went and she climbed it and she was come back and she was telling us about it and she just casually told us that two or three people died climbing that mountain the week before now maybe that's absolute bullshit but that's what she said yeah and I thought about it and then I was having a chat with a friend after about it and I was going like people give out so much about the Isle of Man TT but there's an activity there's a hobby that somebody does they love climbing mountains. Nobody would question that. Oh, fair play to you, like climbing mountains. But nobody questions the fact that, oh, hang on a minute, two people died doing that last week. Yeah, but like I got it with the, with the MMA and like you get it and you get you hear about people giving out about it, that it's human cockfighting and it's fucking barbaric and it's, it's brutal and it's this, that and the other. It's certainly brutal and it's certainly barbaric, 100%, but it's absolutely not as dangerous as cycling a bicycle on the fucking road. No. Like a, a good friend of mine, Colin Lydon, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of what happened, but he came off his bike and smashed his head into a fucking rock, basically. Mm. And, you know, that, that happens fucking, that happens all the time. People aren't, you know, screaming about banning fucking cycling. Yeah, but do you think that's an Irish thing or do you think that's, uh, like, that attitude, that kind of busybody, 
uh, worrying about what other people do and telling them they can't do it. Do you think that's an Irish thing or do you think that goes outside to, of Ireland? To be honest with you, I don't know and I can't answer that because I haven't travelled enough. I haven't spent Possibly, enough time yeah, you abroad. You need to spend a lot of time in a place to feel the type of person that's there. Yeah, this this kind of topic came up with, uh, I think it was Beef, Cormac O'Keefe, um, when he was on. And we were talking about begrudgery. We weren't sure if it was an Irish thing or, you know, if it was a universal thing. It certainly seems to be an Irish thing. Yeah. Um, but again, personally, I haven't lived abroad enough to, to kind of have yeah, to know it, either way. Yeah, it's a thing that really grinds my gears. I hate <laughs> I, I just don't like when people, people shouldn't be allowed to tell you what you want to do. Now, I get the thing about the road racing and the dangerous things. That man has a family. He's going out there and he's risking his life. Yeah, but no one's making him go out no, there. Nobody's making him go out there. He's making that decision himself. And that wife of his made that decision to be with that man when he was probably road racing. I mean, they don't start when they're 40. Yeah, like of somebody's road racing, they're road racing from a young fella. Same with MMA. Yeah. So, like, if she met him and he was road racing, it's not fair to give out to him. That's who he was. And that's who she decided to have a child with or whatever. Like, you can't say how selfish it is. That's who that person is. No, of course. And uh, another guest, um, Graham Mackin, he's an endurance athlete. Do you know Graham? I do, actually. I, yeah. I sold Graham a phone before when I used to work in cars. Ah, hilarious. Yeah. But uh, he's an endurance athlete these days. So he does fucking crazy shit altogether. He did the, the race across America there. Was it fucking four or five thousand kilometer cycle coast to coast in the States? He was... One That's half crazy. of it, and all insane stuff like insane. Uh, one half of the first two man Irish team to, to ever do it. Uh, he's booked in now in 2020 to do the arch to arc. So, starting off at the arc, what was it the Marble Arch in London? It's a, I think it's an 86 mile run to the coast, swim the channel, and then like a 150 mile cycle to Paris. Oh. Insane stuff. How is that physically possible? I, I don't fucking know. I, I genuinely don't. The, the man's a complete lunatic. But there's an analogy there with, let's say, his missus. He, they have a, a small child. Um, I don't know, he's about one or so, maybe even a bit younger. And they're building a house and all the rest of it. And he's going to continue doing all these mad endurance mm. sport events. And you can't just go and rock up to these events and do them. Like he could, I don't know what his training schedule is like, but he could be, be cycling mental. 20 hours a week and running 10 hours a week and, and all the rest of it. And that's a massive strain, I'm sure, on on their relationship and on their family and, and all the rest of it. But as Graham says, she fucking knew what she was getting into. Like, yeah, you know, you know way, it like, sounds like a very sexist thing we're going on about. I'm sure it works the other way around with women as well. Like, of course it does. But it's just a sort of a thing of know what you're getting into. Like, Don't ignore that type of thing. And if you took that away from Graham, I'd say the man would be depressed off his face. Oh, he'd be miserable. Fuck, you, you couldn't live him like You need that thing to think about. Like, when I'm at work during the day, and I, I don't know what you think about, and I I often have this thought about people, I'm sure everybody has a hobby of some description, but some people don't appear to have hobbies. Unfortunately, they don't. Yeah, and I I don't know how them people get through a week, like, without having that thing to think about, like. Yeah, it's, 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 it's sad in a way. One thing that I really love about the conversations that I'm having with people is that you're giving people a window into other people's lives and I'm I'm conscious that I'm portraying I'm portraying people I'm portraying the likes of you as being normal or the likes of Graham as being normal or any of my guests as being normal. They are normal, but everyone can't be an endurance athlete and everyone can't be obsessive about fucking cars. But it's a double-edged sword because I, I want to show people that normal people can have hobbies and interests and, and different things like Roger Darius was a good example of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt 
And I've heard from people that have known him a couple of years who didn't know him or who knew who felt they knew him a lot better after listening to the hour conversation that I had with him. Do you know that kind of way? Because you got into what makes him tick. Yeah, well, we just had a conversation. Like, I mean, in, on what planet would myself and yourself sit down, you know, and and have a conversation like this without no. there being loads of drugs involved for a start? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> but you know <laughs> what I mean? cards. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you know, you'd be in the pub or, or whatever it is. Um, th- these these conversations don't typically happen. No, not, not as focused as they are like but they need to be that focused yeah but like if I met you say at Switch which the car game like we, we might touch on something and you have a brief conversation and somebody else would say something you never actually focus fully on this topic like what are you into and tell me everything about it which is what I think is great about this and which is what I said to you earlier before we started this before we come in here was I think it's very interesting that somebody that you may have met I'm not going to say that you wrote off but somebody that you may have met and you go, oh, I, like, like Beef, you mentioned Beef there earlier. Mm. I was in Biles and Slane one night. I don't know what, where it was a going away party for somebody that was leaving work or something like that. And I've played soccer with Beef before. Right. Now, I'm not a soccer fan. I was playing it to stay fit. But sitting in the pub and in walks Beef with a guitar and I was like, oh, Beef plays the guitar. Then Beef started playing the guitar. I was like, oh my God, Beef's unbelievable. Yeah, he's class, isn't he? He's serious. (laughs) I was like, I I never put those two things together before. And I was like, that's exactly kind of, I suppose, what you're saying is you don't know what somebody is into. No, you really don't. And you could meet them 10 times in the pub or in the shop or wherever and never and have long conversations with them and never get that out of them. The the conversation, fucking, like, small talking particularly, it just fucking murders me. I have no time. Well, what's crack? How are you? You're all right. Shoot me in the face, yeah, please. Yeah, I would be. Uh, I don't know if antisocial is the right word, but I've definitely reached a number of people that I want to know in my life. I'm not willing to go over that <laughs> for somebody who's not very fucking interesting or special. Like, I just I have no time for the small talk thing anymore, and I think I can be a bit antisocial because of that. Yeah, I, I I've been accused of that, I suppose, or at least I, I feel that's what other people kind of just who you think are. of me. Yeah, it is. It is. Like, I don't know, like, how, how many years do you have to be on the planet before you can say, I don't want to waste any more of my time talking about something I have no interest in or this bullshit small talk? Like, a, per- a perfect example of it is, say, you have to fucking go to something with one of your missus's friends or something like that. Yeah. And it has, it has happened to me, and I know the group of people, and I know that I share no interest with them whatsoever. I have no common ground. Like you could, you could argue that I have on a lot of common ground with you, but y- you're interested in stuff, no yeah. matter what it may be, whether it's science or whatever the crap crap is or something you read on the internet. I can have a conversation with you, no problem. But I'm talking about people that are just you can't. I cannot have a. I can find no common ground to talk to these people, and that just bores the hell out of me. Well, I, you, you, again, I hate pretending to be interested in something. Again, you've you've touched on one of the reasons why I've started this podcast or. Um, platform or whatever the fuck it is because it, it, it's definitely going to be more than, than just a podcast it's more like a, almost like a movement or a philosophy or I, I, without sounding too fucking pretentious about it but my reason or one of my reasons was for starting it for starting it was I've this kind of I don't know if you even call it a theory more of a, a, a hypothesis that we as a species so humans have become increasingly domesticated 
So we've essentially become bread to consume. So the, the type of person that you're describing there that just has practically nothing in between their ears, they're, they're domesticated. Yeah. They're, they're, they're in a kind of a, a herd mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they believe everything that's in the papers and on the radio. And they, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, it's so sad when I see people and their lives are consumed by the Premier League or the soaps or, yeah. you know, pick your poison and it's, it's fucking... It's not, or it's like, it's not fair to say, it's, it's, it's not a fair thing to say it's ordinary. For me, the default thing to be into is what you're after saying the Premier League and I hope I don't offend anybody by saying that because I'm sure there are people who are genuinely into it. Oh yeah. But I, what I, I don't know and it might, it's kind of a weird thing to say is, it, it is being into the Premier League does that just involve, and this is the wrong thing to say, but it's what I see a lot. If you're really, really into that, does that involve, is the main activity of exercising your love for that, going to the pub and watching a, a team play and drinking a pint, is that the ultimate expression of your love for that? Like, Is that what you do? Like a cyclist goes for a cycle. I, I, I just don't know. It seems to be a thing that, I have a real problem with Ireland's drinking culture. It drives me mental. I, I just think there's so many people who just have, have nothing only drinking. We're going out, are we going out, we're going out every weekend. And I just feel like screaming and just going, get a fucking hobby. Just do something bar. There has to be another answer bar, drinking. And I think that the mainstay hobbies in this country are, any of the big, big things seem to be all revolved around drinking. Oh, christening, baptism, communion, yeah, but he, but confirmation, he, yeah. you know, your 18th, your 21st, your 13th. Everything, pub. everything. And it's just such a culture here. And I don't know, like, don't get me wrong. I, I love getting pissed and having a good night out, but not every weekend. Like, like once a month is definitely enough for me. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do it once a month. I'm not saying anything that you have to do anything. I'm just questioning it. Like, why does everything in this country have to revolve around drinking? I firmly believe that horse racing is so big in this country because it goes so well hand in hand with drinking. Now, I appreciate the people who have love for horses and who train them, and I think that's class. Fair play to them. They they have their passion and their hobby and they love it. But like the Galway races, it's just a big piss up. Oh yeah, without a doubt, yeah. 100%. Do you know what I mean? And that generates money. There's no two ways about it. That's why it exists. That's why it's so big. I, I just, I find myself questioning uh, some of the, 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 the things that go on in this country and how much they revolve around drinking. I remember, I, d- I could have... Fuck, I hope yeah. I don't offend anybody saying that. No, I don't no, mean no, any don't offense so. by saying that. I, I, it's just an observation that seems to me I'm probably missing something. But well, put put it this way: I can't for the life of me think of who I'm who I'm kind of quoting here. But I m- remember hearing it said that pick any village or town or city or pick any kind of location in Ireland where there's you know more than a couple of houses kind of tethered together around the country. Pick any single one of them. There's thousands of them around the country. And go to any one of them on a Friday or a Saturday night at like 10 or 11 o'clock. And you will be more or less guaranteed that there's somebody who can who practically can't stand they're that pissed out of their fucking head. Yeah. And that's just a complete norm. Like you can't you practically can't walk into a pub in the country at twelve o'clock on a Saturday night where there isn't somebody who's just completely astocious, like yeah. one step away from pissing themselves or getting sick or, yeah. or starting a fight and or whatever accepted. it is. Like, it's oh, that's kind of, the norm. It's just kind that's of next norm. morning, oh, you mad fuck you, you're off your yeah. head last night. It's not like, Jesus Christ, man, take a handy like. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's when you're, young, or when you're younger and when you're coming out of school or still in school, like, and 
like I did it. Everybody does it. I think it's very acceptable at that age because it's a new thing. It's yeah, and it, thing it's illegal and it's, it's you know. Illegal. Yeah. And even after school, like even in college, like because it's it's still all so new and you're in college and they're drinking and then there's just a huge bunch of people doing it. But I don't know how people hang on to it after that point in their lives. I genuinely, now this is just me, but... I would have. I would. I would rather sit out in that lawn, out in the frost, and go to the palace on a Friday night. I think a, a big part of it is people know no different. Yeah, that's why I would. That, I suppose that's the point I was trying to make earlier on. Is that a lack of hobby, or is it? A la- I. I don't. Un- I suppose another point to make on this is, how does that still exist in today's day and age when you've got the internet showing you all the amazing things that you can do? But I think it has massively improved in the last few years. It has, and I think podcast especially like this one has a big part to play because I think people are kind of I used to be of the mentality that there was nothing to do like I, I remember being you know 20 something and thinking to myself oh fucking I'm always in the pub and I'm, I'm spending all my money on this there must be fucking more to life than this mm. you know but what else can I do there's nothing to fucking do mm. because I wasn't in the race car fucking loop I wasn't in the MMA loop and if you, unless you're in a loop like, you, you were kind of lucky in a sense. Like, put it this way, like, where would you be now if, for whatever reason, you just, just didn't have a fascination with cars? I don't know. But I was also lucky in a sense, and you wouldn't have had this until later on in your life, as I had the internet. But with Well, the, I had magazines before that, and this and that and the other, but the internet is a big thing. People underestimate the, the, what that has done for. It, it It is and it isn't, though, because it, 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 can, it can make you more domesticated. Or less domesticated. Yeah, I suppose it can promote that kind of behaviour, the, the, the drinking selfies and this and that and the other, and just kind of just this mindless... But even this kind life. of selfie culture, like this idea of, you know, putting forward this perfect image of yourself 24-7, like it's, it's a real double-edged sword, the internet. Don't get me wrong, I fucking love it. It's the yeah. best thing I mean, if you were ever. to take, away, take it away tomorrow, like we would be like... Fuck! How do we? How do I get on in life? Like, yeah, no, it, it's it's completely revolutionary. You know, I don't think it's it's um, it hasn't as much as it's changed the world. I don't think it's changed the world one tenth, if not one hundredth, of what it will of what it will oh, do of what it's capable. We haven't seen anything yet, yeah. big time. Yeah, big time. We are like, definitely up until very recently. You know, YouTube was cat videos and people falling over and breaking themselves up. Mm. Like, do you know that kind of way? Now there's people making money off it. And yeah, then, and yeah. The likes of that Chris Harris that I mentioned earlier, like he made his living off YouTube videos for a long time, and look you, where it got him. Speaking of YouTube, you're proficient in YouTube. You're you're on it regularly, are you? Or yeah, I would watch YouTube rather than watch television. Brilliant. Who can you give to people who wouldn't be that fluent in it? Who in racing, say, are cars, or who who do you subscribe to? Who would you recommend people should subscribe to? Well, I suppose the only one on this side of the pond that's not really Japanese videos that there's no English speaking in is uh, if you want to uh, <laughs> you're such a fucking yeah, weirdo I'm such a nerd like, and I can't speak a word of Japanese which is the annoying thing like how many hours of footage have I watched and not a word uh, Chris Harris like I mentioned earlier uh, as for and he will uh, kind of educate you on the racing and the things as well he's got a very ordinary guy approach to it I genuinely like him. He's funny as fuck. You'll be laughing at him. And he'll get the mentality across to you of every car has a purpose. Every car has a job. And you're never in the right car for the right job. That's the thing of liking cars. You're never in a given situation. It's very rare that you're in the right car. You're always thinking, 
you know, I'd love now one of them or one of these. And That's he, a real faraway hills. Yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. And he will explain all that quite well. So to anybody that was trying to, that, that would even try to make sense, I suppose, of the absolute scrap that I've talked for the last hour, <laughs> uh, Chris Harris would be a good start. And if you wanted to see what the whole Japanese culture thing is, there's uh, called uh, Option Videos. Option Video and Hot Version Videos. So if you type in hot version into YouTube. Hot version. Hot version. It's not porn. <laughs> uh, hot version into YouTube. Uh, that would basically, if you started early on in that, that would bring you from the beginning of that Japanese culture right up until today. And so would the video options. Is there, I've seen Senna. I thoroughly enjoyed Senna. What a movie. Have you other ones that you might put me and everyone else onto? Movie wise, there's not much. There's a documentary on the MotoGP, basically. It's a very kind of in around Valentino Rossi. It's um, oh, typical. I think you and McGregor narrates it. Okay. Uh, about Valentino Rossi? It's it's about the MotoGP, but it follows Valentino Rossi through it. Like so through. If, if I was to Google Ewan McGregor, Ewan McGregor... MotoGP documentary. Okay, you'll find yeah, it. You'd find that... Uh, Senna is a great one. Senna gives you love a great that. Love aspect. It. He's such a dickhead, but I still love him. I come out of that movie thinking, what a dickhead, but what a legend as well. Like, he's yeah. so entitled. Uh, he kind of annoyed me. But anyway, uh, Rush is a great movie. It's not really a doc. It is a documentary, but it's more kind of movies. Senna was a documentary documentary. Rush is an acted out documentary. It's quite good. It's got, uh, what do you call your man that plays Thor? Oh, fuck, I'd be useless. Sorry. Yeah, whatever his name is anyway. It's got fairly big actors in it. It's very, very good. It gives a great insight into um, into Formula One in the 70s. And a fella called James Hunt, who was kind of like sex, drugs, and F1. That's what he was. Right. He was an absolute legend. Like, he, like Well documented about him, like fucking five minutes before he gets into the F1 car, riding some young one and then getting into the car and <laughs> winning the race. Like, he's just a cool person. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, like they they'd be kind of the things, and then I suppose a good understanding, and maybe if you wanted to see the the, the certainly the the origins of what got me into the drifting thing, you can type in um, D one Grand Prix, say two thousand and three. If you type that in and just watch some of that, maybe it floats somebody's boat, maybe it won't. I don't know, but that's kind of the things. Certainly, I've been through all of those videos on YouTube because there's only so much content that they put out between those years that is of interest to me but if you did want to take an interest in it that's that's the way to go about it. youtube has it all there and what's it might be your channel but killian's channel to see it, uh, specifically what you two lads are up to like uh, i'm sure there's people listening know you know my channel. if you type in um uh team techno t-e-k-n-o a86 you'll get a lot of mine and killian's videos up team techno a-E-86. 8086. That's yeah. the Japanese version of the twin, ca- twin yeah. cam. Yeah, that's the chassis code. But, so that's that's what everybody calls it. If you type that into YouTube, you see a lot of mine and Killian's videos of driving. And are you racing? Have you got like a race coming up? or no, do, you, do you compete uh, as a competitor? Never competed once. Never once have I competed. And is that something you regret or want no, to do? Or? No, I don't... I, I don't think there was ever... I came into it kind of I was too young when the competition in Ireland was something that I would have liked to have done uh, it had kind of progressed too far before I got to the stage where I could go and do it I mean I could do it in the morning but I'd be wasting my time do you know what I mean I wouldn't have the money I don't have the like my car is a very well specced car 
but it's certainly not powerful enough to go and start competing and drifting nowadays. Yeah, yeah. But with drifting is a funny thing. Uh, Killian is in Australia at the moment. So drifting on your own, going out and driving the track on your own is certainly entertaining. But it gets to a point where you're kind of thinking like drifting is very much about having two at least two cars on track at the same time and driving as and and driving sideways as closely together as you can and is that a scoring thing yeah well that's how it's that's when you're competing that's how it's scored against how how you compete is uh say me and you are doing it we line up at the start and you will lead for the first run so my job is to get as close to you as i possibly can and it's my job to keep away from your it's your job to try and get away from me okay while hitting all the points that the judges have laid out yes And then we sw- swap, swap, and then I'll chase you. What way did we start? Basically, you swap around. I know what you, you mean. Sw- you yeah, switch yeah. roles. Tit for tat. Like. Tit for tat. And then the judges will say, well, uh, Frano was absolutely a millimetre away from your bumper on the run, and you were way behind him. Frano wins. He's true to the next round. Bring on the next car. And again. presumably there's penalties if you tip into me or vice versa. It depends. Or... I can tip into you. I can touch you. But as long as I don't hit you hard enough that it throws you off. Right. Then I'm okay. Light contact is very much seen as a good thing. Okay, that's what you're striving for. Yeah, like if you can get close enough that your tyre is just rubbing off his door, then that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, which is why, um, like when I would have went to Anglesey, I've been to Anglesey three times, every time I was there with, with say, Killian and Paz, who would be of the same level driver as me, if not slightly better driver than me. But we're all of the same level, which means that we can go out and drive together. And I can trust the two lads because I know they're good and they can trust me because they know I'm of a certain level. Like, yes, Once yes. you're of a certain level, you can drive close together. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's sim- about trust. Like. Similar to sparring. Similar to sparring. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd imagine like if you know someone's certain level, you can take certain liberties because you know that they're 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 equipped to deal with something yeah. that might go wrong. And they're, they're not going to do anything reckless. Not going to do anything reckless. So say... I'm driving with Killian and Paz and I'm the middle car. So you can have three, four, they call, they call them trains when there's more than one car drifting together. A, a drift train? or A drift train, yeah. Like okay. You could look that up. There's some insane stuff, maybe 20, 30 cars just going around the track, which is very difficult to do. But Side by side, sideways. Side by side, sideways. <laughs> it's pretty mental. <laughs> and uh, like you get, sometimes you get lads sticking their hand out of the window and touching the other cars. Yeah, and stuff yeah, like that. yeah. It's yeah. pretty mad like that. But say we do that... I'm depending on Paz to not spin out. And I'm also depending on him, if he does spin out, to spin out in the right direction. Like, when you lose control, if you're drifting and you lose control, it doesn't mean you have to abandon all hope of, of steering the car. You can choose your ditch. You can choose your ditch. So if you're close to the inside of the track and I'm coming up... Well, you can't see what my hands are doing. But if you're close to the inside of the track and I'm coming up along, say, your passenger door and we're yeah. both sideways, if you think you're going to lose it, try and go away if we're going around a left hander try and spin the car out to the right if you're going to lose control or if you are going to spin out on the inside try and get it in out of the way because the more experience you get you know the traje- trajectory of the car that's coming behind you where it needs to go where his easy exit is yes so when you're driving with drivers of the level that Killian and Paz are you know what you have to do if you lose control and we've never crashed into each other and we've driven very very closely to each other at speeds uh, at reasonable speeds like at fairly high speeds and that only comes like I wouldn't like to do that with somebody that I've never driven before yeah of course I yeah. think it was it wasn't the last time the last time I was in Anglesey I didn't have as 
I wasn't driving as well. But I think it was in 2015, we all kind of had the cars in a similar place, all similar spec, which meant they were evenly matched. And some of the driving that we'd done there, I'll remember it for the rest of my life. Like, it was just... We, everybody was just smiling ear to ear coming in out of the car like the adrenaline was pumping we all knew we were we were just in a good zone yeah yeah and there was liberties taken and there was no comeuppance for it like the cars came home mint after all the driving and you get this especially when you drive the car home from the track when you drive the whole way there to wales now it's only 30 minutes from the ferry when you get when you from hollyhead like you only drive 30 minutes off the road and you're at the track it's not exactly a trek across fucking england but yeah you drive the car to the track, this ludicrous car, you're driving out on the road, you're waiting for somebody to arrest you. You get over there, you drive for two solid days, you drive the absolute shit out of that car. You treat <laughs> it like the worst piece of shit ever. You torture it. And you drive it really close to somebody and you have these close ones and you're doing these ludicrous speeds and you get back into it on the Sunday evening you drive it back to the ferry, get the ferry home, off the ferry, drive it back the whole way back down to the shed when you get out of that car after a weekend of that and the car is in one piece and you're in one piece, you kind of go to yourself, I can't believe I got away with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every time we come back, it's the same thing. Like You, you get out of the car and you just get this. It, it provides so much enjoyment from start to finish. It can provide a lot of stress getting there. And I'm, I'm definitely a stressor. If I have a ferry at 8 o'clock, I need to be sitting there waiting for that ferry to pull in at 6 o'clock. Or I would be like, we're going to be late, we're going to be late, we're going to be late. I have to have everything organised. Whereas, say, Killian would be just like, oh yeah, whatever, should we leave at 10 to 8? I'm sure we'll be there. When he's closing the door, he let us in. And aside aside from that, is there a type? Like, is there... It, can you think of anything that kind of... Um, can you think of anything that you would have in common, say, with that Japanese lad that you went over to see? Aside from, obviously, your love of fucking twin cams. But is there something... Yeah, absolutely. I think car people are very similar in every aspect. In that, the sacrifice I I found with anybody that I talked to in, into cars, take away the cars completely, and they're the same type of person. How so though? Like, they're relaxed people. They don't get offended easy. They're they're willing to slag each other, and have and they have fun about the same things. Like it's a some people get a bit worked up about it, but it's a very a very common thing for people to slag you about crashing and stuff like that. Are you? you're probably going to lamp that yoke or something funny before you go out, like seconds before you're pulling the helmet on, don't crash, and you're going, oh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So that's kind of a very common thing. I haven't met very many people who don't share that sense of humour. There's a usefulness in car enthusiasts as well, I think, is there? There's the kind of, and again, I was taking the piss out of you calling your boy racer there earlier on, but there is a boyish element, is there? Yeah, is I think so. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It's a kind of a, it's hard one to put your finger on that. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a kind it's of a ex- devilment kind of thing. Yeah, like, but I think yeah. it's your excitement in it. Because even just sitting here listening to talk, talk to you about it, like, I, I'm fucking, I had no interest in going seeing a fucking race or, or anything of that nature. And if I really wanted to, I probably could have went drifting with you before, but you know, yeah, it was never yeah, really that fucking never bothered. never really your arse thinking about it even. I'm mad to do it now. Because like, yeah, you, well, like, your enthusiasm is contagious. Like. It's, it's, it's a dangerous thing to go and experience because... Like if you if I brought you out in the car with me, it's not that you, you'd. I'd hope that I wouldn't scare you shitless. I'd hope that I would look re- relaxed enough driving the car that you'd be going. I feel safe enough here. If I did scare you shitless, I'd be. That's fair enough. But I don't think you're the type that would scare too easily. Some people would be like, "Oh my god, stop the car!" But 
if you went, it's one thing to go as a passenger in the car and you go, it's like a roller coaster or something like that. You go, yeah. oh, this, that was brilliant. That was deadly, unbelievable. But when you get in and you drive the car and all of a sudden you're in control of the roller coaster, you've got all the feelings <laughs> from, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you've got yeah, all yeah. the adrenaline feelings the from what's actually going on. All the fear and all the responsibility. All the fear <laughs> and all the responsibility. And then you're in control of how much fun you have all of a sudden. Like, And when you build up the, con- it just gives you so much emotion. When you build up the confidence to do the mad thing like like the scariest part of drifting around a corner is the entry for me because going into the corner going into the corner and it's the most thrilling part because again to go back to earlier the Corolla has very little horsepower which means you cannot afford to lift off the throttle or do anything back commit to the corner as hard as it'll go you're going into what would be a blind corner if there was a ditch say flat out basically yeah well I wouldn't call it a blind corner some corners are blind, but like you can see the corner, you can see through the corner. But that, but that's what I mean. Like it would be a blind corner if there was a ditch on it. Yeah, yeah, right. So say you're coming up, say the first corner of Mandelo is a hairpin, right? Which if you are driving around it fast, you could probably drive around it at say at the slowest point of the corner, you'd be doing thirty mile an hour. Yeah, I've been around Mandelo. You've been around Mandelo, so yeah. you know the first corner of Mandelo, right? If you're drifting that, you're probably coming out of it, coming down the straight. And do you know where the bridge crosses the track? Oh, Can fuck you remember no, that? I wouldn't anyway, know specifics. There's a, there's a bridge that crosses the track, right? And it's a nice, it's about three quarters way down the straight. If you're racing into that corner, you're full hard down, you're coming under the bridge, and then you're in a straight line, and you're breaking at the last possible second. And it's pretty fucking exciting. I've actually recently done some racing with the car, and it's awesome. But if you're drifting it, and drifting it properly, you come down that straight, and I'd say you're getting to about 80 miles an hour. Right. Is in my estimate what you're getting to. You're not letting off the throttle in a Corolla, and then you're just as hard as you can flicking the car at the corner, and all of a sudden your side was at eighty miles an hour. And do you drop like is the handbrake involved? If do you're you pull bad at the handbrake, it. if you're, if bad, you're at bad at it, okay. So uh, that's not fair to say. If you're driving a car with a lot of power, you generally have more grip. So sometimes you need to use the handbrake, but in a Corolla, you should never pull a handbrake in a Corolla. If you're pulling the handbrake in a Corolla, you're doing it wrong. Okay, so you come into the corner fairly flat out, eighty eighty odd. Well, ma- imagine driving on the motorway and getting the steering wheel and violently shaking it to the right and then to the left. Yes. As hard as you can. You know what's going to happen. The and car's going to go crazy. Do you go down a gear as you, you do, do that? You generally or? keep, like an engine will have a power band. So whatever gear you need to be in. In that case, I've gone down the main straight Mandela. I will go down to the next gear. Because what happens next is once you break that traction and the car is sideways, you need to, that's when you need to be brave. Well, it takes a fair amount of bravery to do it. But it's not bravery. It's confidence in yourself. I would never go out on the track and just do that straight away because I'll crash. I need to build up my confidence at slower speed for yes, a couple yes. of laps and then when I know I have the feel of the car, I'll do it then. But once you break that traction, say at 80 mile an hour, especially coming into that corner Mandela, if you don't get back on the power, so you're sideways now, you're pointing towards the wall, your wheels are turned away from the wall, but if you don't press the accelerator and press it hard, the car's going to spin out and you're going to crash. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a thing when you're starting out that you have to get over in your head that if the car is sideways at an angle and it's flo- and the back of it is floating towards the wall, it's not the brake you press, it's the accelerator. You need to get away from that wall. You need yes, to get away course, from that object. Yeah. And the way to do that is accelerate. So it's a balancing act. Yeah. It sounds complicated, but when you, you feel a lot of force, it's like riding a bicycle, I suppose. Your body is kind of like a, a gyroscope. It's able to feel a lot of forces. Yeah, of course it and is. And once yeah. you get a feeling for what's going on, the car will, a good car will let you know where what's going on, where the grip is, what's happening. And you'd feel it in the cheeks of your arse, as we just say, what you need to do next, like. 
So you'll know that, oh, if I get back in the throttle now, it's going to spin, or I need to give it more throttle to keep it going, or I need more steering, or I need this. It's, it's, it's muscle memory. It's a feeling. It's, you can't explain it. Like, What do you think of kind of modern cars with all the electrics and the, uh, you know, automation and, like, they're, I feel myself that even, like, the the A6 that I have is a, is a, is a lovely car to drive, but it's... The car does a lot of the work itself. You, you're you're never in. Yeah. I don't know. Do you, do you know? Do you know the point I'm kind of struggling to make? That there's mixed, a lot going on. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it because I drive. I do a long drive to work. Well, it's long by my standards. I drive an hour and fifteen minutes to work every day. And in that aspect, my answer is that question is yes. Give me a fucking Tesla with no gears that's fast and does everything <laughs> for me, so that I have to do as little as possible going on the way to work. But there's a big difference between driving for fun or even just driving at the weekend. And getting to work. When you're going to work, if you had a teleport or you just get in and you go to work. Yes. You, you wouldn't drive a fucking car. So that's a car doing a job. So in the, and in a lot of circumstances, for some people, your Audi is a car to do a job and to do it comfortably and to do it quietly and nicely. And then you have people who buy them then because they're a nice car and they want to enjoy them. So for you, I would certainly say you don't want the car doing too much for you. But... If you were depending on going to work every day and you're driving it for an hour, like if you were sitting in Dublin traffic, have you ever been sitting in traffic in Dublin and just going, oh my God, if I have to press the fucking clutch in and select first gear one more time, I'm going to go crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? For example, in Japan, I wouldn't have a manual car in Japan because the traffic is just fucking stupid. You go nuts with a manual car in Japan. Yeah. But I think driving for fun, the less electronic stuff, the better. And again, to elaborate on that, watch Chris Harris. He's got a wonderful way of looking at it going. He's, he is capable of not being narrow-minded and going, this is what the electronics is doing for the car. It's faster. I've got more confidence. I can go faster. It's, it's, it's just saved me from crossing the ditch there. Yes. But do I want that? That's, t- that's just taking away the excitement of me having to go, oh, I'm saving <laughs> it. Like, I'm going down the road. Like, and I think, see, what sells with new cars is speed and have you ever heard of the Norbergreen? Probably watching yeah, top yeah. here, yeah? Lap time on the Norbergreen. That just sells a car. So, if... Have you been around it? No. A mate of mine went to it this year. How the fuck have you not been around the Norbergreen? It's a fair... It's it's actually less of a pilgrimage in Japan, but my car is not suitable for it. Why is your car not suitable for it? <sighs> because... For the long journey, or...? It's the long journey, and even the track... Well, I suppose it'd be nice in the track, but... I don't know. I'd I'd want something... I would sooner go to the Norbergreen in your Audi than my Corolla. Yes, yes. Do you know what I mean? But when are we going? Uh, I don't know. Should we go next week? Sure. <laughs> uh, it's a scary thing. The Norbergreen. The Norbergreen is is it's a big risk. Can it's, you lay that? Out? I know exactly what it is, but for people who mightn't, the Norbergreen is basically a toll road in Germany. It's not. It is a racetrack, but it's not a racetrack. It's this. I think it's one of the longest circuit. It is the longest circuit in the world, but it is actually a toll road. So you can just drive down in your fucking Fiat Panda and pay a tenner and drive around it like you don't have to have a race car to drive around it they have track days but majority of the time they have what's called tourist days so you can buy I think a lap is like 12 euros or 28 euros or something like that I've never been I, I don't know I think it's about 28 euros but it is kind of a mecca for anybody that wants it is the best racing track in the world there is no two ways about it and it's a mecca for any car enthusiast that wants to go there. And that applies across the spectrum, no matter what kind of a car enthusiast you are. But what you don't hear about the Norbergreen... Now, well, actually, if you type in Norbergreen crashes into YouTube, you'll know all about it. 
uh, it's absolutely awesome. I could go on and on and on about how amazing the Nurburgring is, but it comes with massive risk and massive cost if you get it wrong. Um, like, if you crash in the Nurburgring, I think it's something like a thousand euro for every meter of barrier that you damage. And if you spill oil on it and somebody comes down in their Porsche and crashes, you're liable for what happens if they can prove that you spilt the oil out and that can run into a lot of money very quickly. So there's massive risk involved. It's one of those things where you kind of just have to go, yeah, I'm just doing it and just go for it and hope that you get away with it. Yeah. I'd absolutely love to do it, but I'm too much of an idiot and I would want the perfect car for it and I wouldn't be happy going doing it unless I did have the perfect car for it. I know what you mean. Which is yeah. stupid because if I got rid of that stupid attitude, I'd have been there by now. And like my mate, uh, Mark Elliott, he has a, uh, he bought a Mazda RX-7 a couple of years ago, which which is a fairly, I don't know if prolific is the right word, but it's, it's, it's a fairly substantial piece of Japanese car history. It's a very unusual car. It's got a very unusual rotary engine that no other car has. Certainly in, in, in modern production cars, they don't have them. And uh, he bought that car and enjoyed it, and then the engine went in and he rebuilt it. And as kind of a treat to himself when he he built it himself, and as a treat to himself when he got it back together, he works in uh, he works shift work, so he had a week off. So like the Thursday before the week off, he decided fuck it and going to Nurburgring, which was heroic to say the least, because anybody else <laughs> would be prepping for so long to do it. Like so, he just decided I'm just going. He just got into his car and he drove over, and like he kind of proved we all knew, but it takes somebody to do it to just go. Yeah, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, of just course. go. But as he said himself, like he went down in his own car the first time and drove around it and thoroughly enjoyed that. And then as his own car, the tires started to wear and stuff like that. And he was going, oh, I don't want to break it now. I'm after getting a lot of laps over the last two days. I don't want to break it. And so you can rent a car there. Right. It's expensive. Like it's like, I think it's like 400 quid for two laps or something like that. Yeah, but put it this way. I spent 600 quid to spend fucking half the day in Mondello. Like. Yeah, yeah. Which compared to that, Mondello is just poo. Like compared <laughs> yeah. to Nobody. So... Uh, he bet 400 quid but he had already been around the track maybe five or six times at this stage so then he goes into the, the briefing they give you before they rent the car and he said by the time he came out of the briefing he was going do I actually want to go out of this track didn't really push you off it they, 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 what they showed you and they told you the cost of doing this and I think it's something like the excess and the insurance I, don't, I can't remember if it was 7 or 17,000 he said the excess and the insurance as he was saying to himself he'd actually be better off just buying the car driving around and then selling it afterwards you know, it was it, like if you got it wrong, the, the consequences of getting it wrong were just massive. And they had videos there of people getting it wrong. And is is there anything to be said for like I I drive over, do it in my own car, but I Absolutely. wouldn't I wouldn't go fucking flat to no, the mat. I just that. like you, to you fucking have the balls to do it. Yeah, actually, what not? And I do what I like. And I think what people mistake with with it. And again, I have no experience, so I'm talking absolute shit. But I, like I'm I'm talking from Mark's point of view. I think what the mis mistake people make with the Nürburgring is they think it's a racetrack it's a racetrack for a professional race driver or somebody who has done 100 plus laps of it yeah but you, if you go over there as a, a, a say you went over you need to treat that as a road and you need to be very aware it's a road with lunatics on it yeah yeah. do you know what I mean like, <laughs> actually Mark's cousin the first person of our group to go was my cousin Owen and my cousin John and um, they went I don't know three or four years ago and he's he he um, explained what it was like the first time we went out on track and he says the slower you're going around the track like the first time you go out you're going really cautious and the slower you're going the more dangerous it is because there's more stuff appearing from behind you all the time so you're having to look in your mirror the whole time you're trying to concentrate on what's in front of you and getting to know the track and all that but if you're going too slow the more cars are catching up to you 
And like you could be doing 70 or 80 mile an hour down a straight or maybe around a slight corner. And there's some guy who's done 300 plus laps in a 300,000 euro Porsche. And he's probably doing 140 mile an hour going past you. And you need to get the fuck out of his way. You're going to cause a big accident. Yeah. So his point of view was you need to be cautious, but not too cautious. You need to get to grips with it fairly quickly. So it's that's where it gets fucking dangerous. Do you know what I mean? Like I, your idea is a lovely idea, and I thought that I I would like to do that too. Is I'd love to go over in a nice, comfortable car and say I don't know, go over and see Europe. Maybe go to beaches in Normandy and stuff like that, and do a little tour around Europe, and then go. We'll just do a lap of the Nurburgring in the ordinary car to say that we've done a lap of it. Well, I'd say it'd be fucking scary doing it in the ordinary car too because you just don't know what's going to happen. And I wonder, and again, a quick Google will probably sort this, but I wonder, is there a time when the lunatics and the Porsches doing fucking 200 miles an hour kind of aren't allowed? No. It's, it's always... If it's a tourist day, it's open, and you can go out. Like, there's actually funny videos on YouTube of unusual cars out on tourist days, isn't it? Like, lads going out in Jeeps and buses and stuff like that. This yeah. is why I'm saying it's a toll road. You can go out on a motorbike if you want. Of course. You can go out on anything you want. You know, I, I don't know if they even check to see if it's, if the vehicle you're bringing out is road legal. Now, they do have closed days where it's a track day. And that's, I'd imagine, where you'd see some real cars at. Yeah, of course. And some people really But I'd nearly, I'd nearly go to a track day and not, you know, partake in it. But just to see the, well, it, the breed of cars that are there and like the Like, if you're going to do that, and I, we were actually talking amongst ourselves about this, there's a, there's a, have you ever heard of Le Mans? Like the Le Mans 24 hour Le Mans heard of it is that like a gumball thing is that, no that's, that's an actual motorsport it's a 24 hour race with endurance racing cars yes endurance racing yes they, like they do it's not just Le Mans that's a circuit well it's actually a town I think that has a circuit around a road circuit but Nuremberg like, is the same isn't it or the yeah, Nuremberg it's Nor- a town Nuremberg has yeah it is I don't know what the name of the the Nordschleif I think could be the name of the town I'm not sure uh there's the 24 hour Norbergreen. There's the 24 hours of Spa in Belgium. Like, it's not just Le Mans. There's an endurance racing series. But uh, even for what I would love to do, and I think this would apply even to people that don't have much interest in cars, is go to the 24 hours of Norbergreen. Because it's a full race day. They've got concerts. They've got everything at it. It's a full festival. festival. Yeah, yeah. And then the Germans just take it to the next level. Like, me and you think, oh, we'll go camping at the Norbergreen 24 hour and we bring a tent and we might <laughs> set up a fire and have a few cans or something like that. These guys build tents with fucking can, or with a, what do you call it? Like a, what do you call it? Like sticking out the front of your head, porches and everything. On yeah, the, like, yeah, out the of whole They build fucking houses on the side of the track, like, and they have these festivals and fucking mad music playing and they're all hammered and there's cars racing by all night. It just looks like the best crack ever. And that aspect I'd love to go and do. But I definitely, one thing I will need to drive that track before I die, I think it would be an absolute disgrace to me if I didn't at least. I can't believe you haven't around it. I don't know why. Again, the car I have, it's hard to focus on one thing and I don't feel like I do enough driving with the car that I have at home. And then the Green is a whole other thing to uptake all together I think if I was going to say in 2018 I said to myself I'm going to the Norbergreen I think I would the car that's over the road there wouldn't be doing a whole lot to facilitate that because I want to be doing it to the best ability that I could to reference back to Japan you're going so make the most of it yeah yeah uh, even though it's not as far away and it's far more accessible like I mean I, I'm sure I could get a flight to wherever for 50 quid and be there for less than 100 quid be standing inside that track for less than 100 quid so I'm probably making a bigger deal out of it than needs be like it's always the way with these type of things. It's always it? like, the way. Like I guarantee, I'll go and then I'll go. Why did I take so long to do this? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the I, I was thinking about going with Mark this year, and then I was kind of 
saying to myself, well, I'm definitely going to Japan at the end of the year, so I can't do both. You yeah. mentioned Le Mans. Uh, what about, is it the Dakar Rally? Any interest or...? Love it, but I wouldn't go to it. Uh, There's it not much to see, though, really, would there be? Or... I think you'd have to watch that from a helicopter, to be honest. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's one of those. That's like um, what you were saying about the... the what they call them doing the endurance running and cycling and all that that's, yes yes that's what that is that is just pure it's extreme like. it is extreme in the middle of a desert like it's extreme it's one of those awesome events that i think you're better off watching on television than i just can't imagine going to africa and standing in the middle of an absolutely scaldy desert and it's not i'm not exactly sure what way the dakar works i think it's more of a it's kind of a set of checkpoints that you have to hit rather than here's one set road that you follow because you're crossing deserts. Like. Yeah, there's literally no track. Like there is literally you're, you're no following track. a compass to yeah. get from one point to yeah, another. Yeah, and I like. think you just have to check in at certain checkpoints or be seen at certain. I don't know exactly know what way it works, but it's certainly not just here's a road and follow it. Like you see guys crossing plains. But what I do love about it, it's got trucks and it's got bikes and cars and jeeps. It's mental. Like, it's and are crazy. you uh, are you an engine head? Like, yeah. are you into planes and tanks yeah, and yeah, subs yeah, 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 and yeah. fucking love all that shit? <laughs> love all that stuff. Like, I was actually, earlier this year, I went to a, a thing called uh, the Royal International Air Tattoo, which Air is... Air Tattoo? I don't know why it's called Air Tattoo. I think it's called Air Tattoo because, you know the way, like, fighter jet planes would have certain crews, say, there might be the Hawks or something, and they'll have their little symbol. I think yeah, that's yeah. where the tattoo part of it oh, comes okay. I'm not sure, though. But that was, like, I love the war. I, lo- I love all that kind of stuff. The, the older war, not so crazy, but the newer wars, because they're a bit, yeah. When, but, like, World War One, World War Two. I love okay. that history. I just, yes. I think there's an endless amount of, of interest to be had from that. But this air tattoo had really appealed to me because it appealed to the absolute awesome spectacle of seeing a jet fire, a modern day jet fire. So this is an air show you're talking it's about? It's an air show. Sorry, yeah, I didn't explain myself correctly there. It's called, That's what it's called. It's an air show in England with everything from the last of the flying Spitfires and Messerschmitts to modern day jet fires that are going out and killing people out in Africa or out in Pakistan or somewhere like that. Like Yeah, wherever. Wherever. And to talk, what, what was funny about it is to be like, oh, this is an F-22 Raptor. Yeah, it's just recently completed nine successful missions out in Afghanistan. And everybody's like, ooh, when you're going nine successful missions, that means yeah. like a lot of people died because of that thing up there. Like, it's kind of a, kind of a surreal kind of feeling looking at it. I don't know if surreal is the right word, but it's... No, no, it's... it's I, I, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like you're amazed by it, but you're going, oh, that's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, like there's no need. It's not like... I know there was no need for World War One or Two, but... It was necessary for everybody to fight in that to 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 stop the wrongness that was happening. But yeah. modern wars are, I'm pretty convinced they're about oil and money and bullshit. Like, I don't think that modern wars are about somebody trying to take over the world anymore. I think it's just you've got a load of oil C- control, we control control of resources and, and just showing their muscle and stuff like that. So I find a lot more heart in. It's such a wrong thing to say because they were killing machines as well. But I do find a lot more heart in the older planes i know what you mean yeah there was and they're a- more mechanical and they're more relatable as well like they're just fantastic like, but that was an eye-opener that that is a prime example of what like i love all things mechanical and just with engines and stuff that runs and stuff that does it serves a purpose and stuff like that and that was kind of a jet fighter i think is the ultimate expression of what man can do with machine when you see one of those go past at full chat and they're not allowed past the sound barrier because of the sonic boom yeah they're not allowed to do it over land or over any 
I think they're only allowed to do it o- over the sea. And it'll maybe break in, glass, will it? A sonic boom from a I'd jet fighter? So I'd say so. I don't really know. I've watched videos of them doing it before. Definitely. Google two things if you want to be entertained is jet fire sonic booms and jet flight or low flying passes. It's just oh, a low flying pass a big, to give you a bit of a perspective. Perspective of how fast they actually are. Like, yeah, yeah. Like the jets that were the jets were flying over the runway. I, I couldn't really put a figure on. Like definitely, if there was, they would have hit the spire in Dublin. Say, that's they they were flying low enough say to hit the spire in okay. Dublin. Um, they were flying past the runway and it was just mind-blowing how fast they were going and they weren't breaking the sound barrier like they on one hand at that show you were looking at the spitfires and how graceful they were and the noise of them and it, like they had two lancaster bombers uh two spitfires a messersmith and something else they're all kind of there's not many of them left flying like yeah, yeah world war Two era world war Two era planes and they're flying by and you're looking at them and they're doing a couple of passes but even to just close your eyes and listen to them and go imagine hearing that sound back in the day like that just would have been constantly droning around the place that noise back in London in the day or oh, during the Blitz the, yeah. during the Blitz yeah. and all that that noise in the middle would of be, the fucking night like. it'd either strike fear into you or it'd strike make you feel safe because you knew they were up there I don't know but it was just a real eerie feeling to listen to that to listen because there was of those engines there's four on the bombers so that's eight engines and another probably 12 of those famous Rolls Royce Merlin engines, and they wouldn't that, have been jet engines, would no, they? No, they were. So they they're were more big mechanical. V twelve engines. They yeah. were huge V twelve engines, mechanical as you can get, with a propeller bolted onto the end of it and fucking shoehorned into a plane. They were awesome. <laughs> they were fucking <laughs> awesome. Coolest machines going, as far as I'm concerned. But um, it was weird watching them fly overhead. To be in England at an old RAF. Airbase, yeah. Even just seeing the, the RAF symbol, a or symbol whatever, the, on the, the side of them, and then they had yeah. the Messerschmitt flying around it as well. And I was going, "Oh, this should so simulate dogfight or something. That'd be cool." They didn't <laughs> do that anyway, probably out of respect, I'd imagine. But you had that, and then you had the just the like jet fighters are just amazing, like what they're able to do. And the only thing that's limiting a jet fighter really nowadays is the human body. Like, like they, they can go, they can corner faster and everything. It's it's stopping us from knocking out. That's the problem. Like. The G's, Shit, yeah. the G's they're experiencing like what speeds are they up to because they're up on Mach 3, 4 are they I don't know if they're on Mach 4 like did, are they Mach 3 Gillette Razors like no Mach Mach is, is, isn't that it's not what the it's yeah, not Mac what Jet one, Mac 1 is the sound barrier is the sound barrier and Mac, Mac 2, 2 is twice, twice the sound barrier and I think the sound barrier in miles per hour is around 760 miles per it, hour I think it varies depending it's on altitude knots, it's, you should it's, really measure it in I think is knots is a more actual accurate way of measuring it right but for us common folk I think it's around 760 miles an hour and when you cross that down you break the sound barrier but I don't think like when you hit Mach 2 I don't think anything different happens you've already broken the sound barrier I know what you mean yeah, yeah aside from you you're just already going, twice going as fast, fucking like. fast don't be expecting any more like <laughs> um, I don't know how fast like different planes will have different jobs so I think like you don't really have spy planes anymore because you have drones but there used to be a spy plane called the SR-71 if, again if you're interested in that stuff look up a documentary on the SR-71 some awesome stories about it but I think that flew from I, I think it was Los Angeles to Paris in two hours that had to have been Mac 3 I think that thing's able to do I so don't that's know that. fucking West Coast America West Coast Paris America two hours something crazy two two and a half hours like the d- details I'm not sure yeah, the yeah, details yeah. but they're mind blowing 
like what it was able to do but there is no need for planes like that anymore because they can fly drones now and if they get shot down boohoo but back then obviously they need to have planes quick enough but the jets I was looking at I don't know definitely over Mach 1 anyway well over Mach 1 yeah but like they obviously weren't doing that at the show and it was still like you could see it coming 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 and then and it was just like there was no point where you're looking straight ahead and looking at the plane it was you never really saw it yeah it was as nearly as almost as fast as your neck could turn and the noise oh the fucking noise man. and there, there is one for like, you it wouldn't have been doing like the supersonic speeds but when it did it did it pass you yeah, and that, then the noise caught up with it, it is it the Doppler effect you call that Doppler. I think it is the Doppler effect yeah, I think gonna, you're I'm right claim yeah. that one the Doppler effect yeah yeah, uh, yeah. so you go and next thing like I don't know what plane it was uh, I was taking a piss in a plastic portal at one stage I couldn't hold it any longer ended up going for a piss and there was I, I think it was a some sort of Russian fucking I think it was a flanker it was called definitely my favourite plane that was there because it was so fucking noisy but I was taking a piss in the portal and this thing was flying around and I was scared out of my <laughs> the whole thing was vibrating like at the same time I was going, I couldn't wait to get out and see it, but in, it was like a nearly a better experience. It, it was like going, imagine actually being some fella fighting in the war and that thing flying overhead and you're going, that, that thing's coming for me. Like, yeah, it was yeah, just, yeah. It's like the worst thunder you've ever experienced. And then multiply that by two. It is just insane the noise those things make. And that would excite anybody. But the, the technology behind them is crazy. They had an Apache helicopter there as well. And they'd done a display with the Apache helicopter. And the technology that's behind that thing is a bit scary I think from a, so I think the, from a kilometre away and this is not the pilot in it now this is the helicopter itself I think from a kilometre away it can identify threats in the area tanks fucking people what look like military whatever through whatever radar sonar thermal I don't know what I know what you mean or an amalgamation this is of from a kilometre away now this is before you you get near all these people you're going to kill it'll identify all the threats and probably through the use of a drone maybe as well, I don't know. And it'll simulate a battle plan for the pilot. And it'll go, this is what you need to take out first. It's the most risky to you. Now, this is what your man was saying over the, the commentary on at the show. Like, and they yeah, were doing yeah. a display with the chopper flying around, a simulated attack. like. And it was just like, what well, that thing had just killed a battalion of 100 people in five minutes. Like, Yeah, yeah. It was just scary, insane. Like. Scary just to kill it. And like, when you see them pictures of them, you go, well, it's probably a neat little thing. Like, it's fucking massive. Really? It's absolutely huge. It's huge. Like, you're going, how does that thing take off? Like, yeah. And it, it's one of the fastest flying helicopters as well. Like, I think as well. It's just, all those things are just numbers, mind boggling numbers. It's like the F1 all over again, except better. Because <laughs> they're just killing they machines. Because well, they can fucking fly. <laughs> like even taking off, like you know, when you take off in a plane and it's a bit of a saga. Like you need to build up speed. You need to get up. Like those things just take off in a hundred yards. Like they just light up the afterburner and then they just pull up and they just go ninety degrees up and they're gone. Like yeah, depending on what plane it is. But it's just yeah. We're after going way away with that when you're after asking <laughs> do I like engines. Yes, I like engines and shit. <laughs> I think that applies to most car people. I, I mean, we went over, myself and Mark, the guy that went to the Norbert Green, went over to see that and we went over to meet a guy who lives over there. Rob May is his name. He drives, he races the Corolla. And uh, we met him the first time we went to Anglesey. Such a nice guy. He's an absolute dickhead, but he's a nice guy. They should come back to your kind of 
boyish behavior from people that were coming into or into cars like i never met the guy before and the first words out of her mouth were just out of his mouth was just pure abuse towards me yeah and my reaction was i like this guy yeah <laughs> you yeah, know what yeah, i mean yeah. like he wasn't there was no falseness or oh my god your car's cool oh. just like you were fucking shit out there and i was like oh thanks rob you know and that's he just fits in so well and we ended up going back over to him and it's a prime example of people who are into cars whatever will tend to be the same kind of people well, I, what I think, what I think that is, is um, that that boyish nature is because you love it so much. I think, I think car car heads, they love it so much. They're they're enthusiastic so much. They're they're like kids because kid. That's what that's what makes kids kids. It's their enthusiasm for everything. Except when you get older, you lose that, and it takes something very special or something you you know when you get older what it takes to do it for you. And if it's not right, it doesn't do it for you like that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely, yeah, I definitely agree with that one. Like it just makes you feel like when you're a kid, you don't think about anything over only what's the next bit of fun you can have of course when you're yeah. an adult you're just thinking of all the shit stuff and then when you do have that bit of fun like we said earlier on where you forget about everything and you're just doing that one thing that's such a release for you it's such a it's it's funny that you said that because you, you we you practically opened with that yeah. um and it's funny because roger dardis the brazilian uh jiu-jitsu black belt simon andrichetti the uh downhill mountain bike rider and I think even Graham Mackin might have said it, because he'd be hitting serious speeds going down the the side of a mountain on his on his road bike. Yeah. And I have it with uh, with either fighting or even sparring. Hmm. When you're in that kind of zone and the muscle memory is kicking in, and you know your 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 focus, it's 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 meditative. Yeah. And you aren't thinking about you know what ourselves going to say to you when you get home or the bill or the no. work the next day like when you're going sideways around the corner and you're trying to fucking tap the fucking window <laughs> yeah, of the car yeah, beside yeah. you like it's a, it's like an endorphin or something isn't it like you just and I don't know about you after do you analyse say you're after a fight would you analyse that fight in your head for a week or two after it happens Like, would you I think? still haven't got over my last loss yeah, so you're, you're Years thinking ago. about it all the time, yeah. whether it's a yeah. positive or negative thing you're thinking about. It. And even if it is a negative thing, your brain is working on that instead of working on reasons why you might not be happy or why something is annoying you or the next bill or the next bullshit that's happening. Yeah, it's, a, it's a distraction in a way. It's, and you need that. Yeah, yeah big time. I, I absolutely need that. Like, And some people have their things, some people like watching films and that's their way of getting away from reality and that's fine. But for me, it's that, like, if I have a good day out, I mean, geez, I'm still living off the last time I went to Anglesey and it's over a year ago like yeah the, yeah like I was out two weeks ago there I went down to Mandela and raced the car around the track instead of drifted it and I'm living off that it keeps me going it keeps me focused you start to like even if you I had the videos of it and watching over the videos when you get home and analyzing what you're doing and you're looking at going oh you idiot what were you doing there because like, <laughs> you know when you're in the moment like you, you have to be again it comes down to the muscle memory it's up to your muscle memory to make the corrections and do the things right your brain is concentrating on staying alive or whatever it is. It's not outside. Like when you're look, looking at a video, you're outside your mind at that moment of time. You're looking into it and you're going, what were you thinking? But at that time, you're not, you're not worried about that. You're just going, this is what I'm doing. It's, it's, it's my, it's, it's your muscles. That's or whatever muscle memory is guiding you around what you're yeah, doing. You're, you're immersed in it. Yeah. You're lost. Yeah. And I think that's where the training comes into it. You're training. The more you, the more time you spend in the car and driving it, then your intelligence, you, you start to, as you become calmer at what you're doing, your brain is able to think more about it. It's not concentrating really hard on doing some remedial task. 
once you've trained your foot to break the right way or something like that i think your brain can concentrate on something else or maybe with you it's once you're constant once your brain once your your hands are dealing with perfect protecting your face or something i don't know yeah yeah your brain can start to think about well this is how i'm going to attack now and i think it has to take it bit by bit like that and i think the more time you spend that the less your brain has to think and the more your muscles take over no no absolutely because like even even with sparring you're 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 trying to gauge you know if your opponent is kind of circling to the left or circling to the right you know what kicks are available for you to throw and what your what he's likely to throw at you depending on what way he's moving and you're, you're kind of you're wondering will he do what he did there a minute ago again so i can capitalize on it and there's all these things going through your head but when all that's going through your head your hands are still at your fucking chin you, know, you don't you know you're not saying okay keep your hands up keep your hands up keep yeah. your hands up they're just they're fucking there if because if you are thinking about that you're fucked yeah exactly and if your hands aren't there you're fucked yeah, yeah exactly so you're fucked in a lot of ways so you better hope that your muscle memory is fucking working uh, no absolutely listen man it's been an absolute fucking pleasure chatting to you I'm just going to swing over for the time what are we on just shot you three hours 2.45 or so three hours that fairly fucking flew by my didn't god it? I can talk shit about cars <laughs> listen I tell you what I'd love to have you back after we've done something whether I've been to Mandela with you or, or fucking Euroburg yeah, or man, something. Yeah. So um, remind me again the uh, the YouTube channel that we can see or I or anyone else who's interested can see your specific car going around. It's, uh, I don't know what the channel is. I can't remember my channel name but if you type in Team Techno T-E-K-N-O A-E-86 you should get up a lot of videos of both me and Killian driving. Savage. So anybody that's listened to this and enjoyed it, uh, check it out so you know exactly what what we're talking, what if we've been talking interest, about. Yeah. If you've any interest, if you've actually stayed here for this long, which <laughs> fucking hell, you are a loser. <laughs> and on that note, listen, absolute pleasure, brother. Thanks a million. Thanks, man.